Welcome back to the National Citizens Inquiry. For those watching us live online, we apologize that we're a little behind today. We had some exhibits that we had to get arranged for one of our early witnesses. We welcome everyone back to the final day of our Toronto hearings. Uh, commissioners, I would. <coughs> my name is Buckley Initial S. I am attending this morning as agent for the commission administrator the Honourable Chess Crosby. And before I give my opening remarks, I'd just like for those online just to share quickly about the National Citizens Inquiry. We are a <coughs> citizen-organized, a citizen-run, a citizen-funded initiative. We don't have a single large donor. We're doing this all on our own, almost exclusively by volunteers that are attending and participating to make this happen. And what we want is, is we want to start a national dialogue. We want basically the entire nation to share with us in this experience of hearing each other's stories and <clears throat> through hearing each other and understanding each other coming together again because we've become a very divided nation. We also want to learn from this, learn what happened, in a fair and impartial way, and we want to know how to do things better. We, we anticipate that this will be a tremendously useful experience for us as a nation going forward, and we're very proud of what we're doing. I will ask that you go to our website, National Citizens Inquiry. We have a petition. Please sign it so that you become part of the group that is endorsing this project. And we also ask that you please donate. As I say, we don't have a single large donor. This is all done by donations from people like yourself. And to keep this important initiative going, we need your donations. Now I'll switch to my opening comments before we start calling witnesses. Yesterday I had uh, <clears throat> spoken a little bit about some tactics that are used to influence and control us. And I had cautioned you that if you ever start feeling very strong emotions on any topic, that you need to be careful that <clears throat> likely your mind is closed, which only affects you. It means you're totally captured if your mind is not open to new information and new ideas so that you can reconsider your position, not necessarily change your position. Today I want to talk about <clears throat> perhaps the most important way that populations are manipulated and controlled, and that is, is when we are manipulated into giving up our personal responsibility for our actions. Now, <clears throat> everyone has a sense of right and wrong. Every single person in this room every single person watching. When I was preparing this morning for this address, I was thinking of C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity, where at the beginning he's making the case for the existence of God. And one of his points is, is that every single religion, every single culture has a moral code. And when you compare them, they are strikingly similar or identical. 
which is a curious thing with all the different cultures and all the different religions, that in effect we have the same moral code. We know right from wrong. Now, <clears throat> that can be used against us. For instance, we are social creatures. One of the things we fear the most is being excluded from our tribe. I mean, in my age cohort, it might have been different for younger generations. We all remember in gym class, you know, when they're picking the teams, you didn't want to be picked last because you would feel shameful. We want to have a nice car, a nice house, so that we appear um, successful and worthy to our peers. This need for <clears throat> social approval is one of the strongest drivers in our lives. So one of the most terrible things we can do to a person is to shame them publicly. To shame them publicly. That I, I consider that in most cases to be an act of violence, although you're not actually hitting people. And so right now, especially online, we live in a culture of social shaming. We have this cancel culture where we're so willing to viciously attack people online. But understand we do that because of our sense of right and wrong being turned against us. We will attack somebody because they're wrong. They're morally wrong. Let's, do you recall the testimony of Tom Morazzo yesterday? So he gets this email from the dean to about 200 plus faculty members informing him and everyone else that these vaccine mandates are coming down. And he responds to this email, and we have it as an exhibit, where he's basically explaining, you know, there, there's some legal problems with this and some other considerations. <clears throat> and perhaps, you know, others should join with me in a conversation about this. And then, <clears throat> one by one, people started, reply all, please take me off your email list. And after this went on for a little bit of time, one person piped in and said, can you guys just um, reply directly to Tom so that I don't have to get all of your emails? You're filling up my email box. And somebody else chimed in and said, no, we need to do this publicly to shame him. So, and then one by one, they're all, all you know, asking him to take them off his email list. That was an act of social shaming because these people believed they were doing right. Now, you're never doing right when you're committing an an act of hatred. This is done out of hatred and spite, and, and I view that as a violent act. And, and those of us listening to Mr. Morazzo yesterday would agree, but I'm using it as an example of how this sense of right and wrong can be turned against us, and we are capable of being manipulated into doing unspeakable evil. <clears throat> And, and again, I just prepared this this morning after I woke up. But the, the examples that came to mind were Rwanda. 
the genocide in Rwanda. I mean, that happened in our lifetime. And it is unspeakably evil what happened. Nazi Germany is, is one that easily comes to mind. It, it was unspeakably evil what happened. What about Stalinist Russia, these terror states? Or East Germany at its worst? Where, you know, once the Stasi files were opened, people were shocked at who, what friends and family members were reporting them to the secret police. <clears throat> and these people were all manipulated into believing they were doing right. Now, <clears throat> understand that, that the terror states, the police states, the unspeakable evil that happens, it all depends on your cooperation. The leaders are few. The leaders can't do this. The leaders cannot conduct a police state. It all depends on your cooperation. Now, I'm going to say something really important, and you need to remember it if you're going to have any chance of being free going forward. And what that is, is, is that you need to understand that you, you are the police state. Let me say that again. You are the police state. <clears throat> there can be no police state without your cooperation. So, and we become the police state because individually we give up responsibility. We give up our personal responsibility for what we do, for our actions. And it's a well-known concept for those that want to manipulate us. So when I was trying to think of examples this morning, Dostoevsky came to mind. In his novel, The Brothers Karamazov, there's this section with the Grand Inquisitor where, you know, Jesus is have you know, he's come back during the time of the Spanish Inquisition and he's having a conversation with the Grand Inquisitor. <clears throat> and the concept comes up that if you can take away from citizens their personal responsibility you can get them to do anything for you. <clears throat> a, a really good example of that is there's a, a well-known lecture given by Himmler, the head of the SS, I, I believe it was before the Night of the Long Knives, to encourage the troops to go and do what he wanted them to do, which was to murder a whole bunch of people. And he literally said to them, it's not you pulling the trigger, it's me. He was taking away their personal responsibility for the acts that they were being asked to go and commit. And you see, so he understood if he took the responsibility for what they were doing, they would do unspeakable acts that they would not do if they were taking personal responsibility. It's why in the Nuremberg trials, we had to establish the legal principle that following orders is not an excuse for torture and murder because we are psychologically wired to do unspeakable things if we are not personally responsible for what we are doing. So if they can take away your personal responsibility, you are controlled. And we are in Canada, we are doing unspeakable things. 
<clears throat> I've already brought up Tom Morazzo and this email shaming that we heard yesterday. What about the video that he showed us about the police pulling veterans, wounded and decorated veterans, who are telling the police we are not acting violently, but we're standing here, as they were legally entitled to do. And we watched one of them basically being pushed to the ground and kicked by the police. And we're allowing this to happen. What about Mr. Palmer, who testified about the media? He basically told us that the CBC is engaged in propaganda, <clears throat> that the CBC is engaged in deliberately manipulating us to accept vaccines, to basically take a medical treatment that is turning out to be tremendously dangerous. Is that not an act of violence? And yet it is happening even now. What about Natasha, the person who has a mental disability, uh, you know, is mentally traumatized, PTSD, and is physically disabled, cannot wear a mask. She legitimately cannot wear a mask. And this is a lady that used to wear, you know, the big masks on the oil fields all the time. <clears throat> and she's taken to the ground by three police officers in Walmart knowing that she's disabled while a crowd watches and does nothing. The crowd was the police state. The crowd, you, you are the police state. Participating in this social pressure and shaming. How many people have told us that they've taken the vaccine out of social pressure? How many people have told us that their families and friendships are divided because of social pressure? What about the evidence that we're hearing where, you know, in Truro, where we heard a doctor, he submitted 10 adverse reaction reports as he's required to by law, and instead of those reports being submitted, he's professionally disciplined. And we're hearing at these hearings how adverse reaction reports, which are meant to be an early warning system, it, they should be doing bending over backwards to send those to Health Canada and have the media report them so that we can determine whether we need to look into things. But they are being deliberately suppressed by several groups, the media, the, the medical establishment, the government. This is happening today. What about vaccinating kids? Anyone looking into this even in, on a cursory basis, you don't need to look at De Dr. Deanna McLeod's presentation to know that there's hardly been any testing. And to say that they're safe and effective is just a very difficult thing for anyone to credibly try to assert. And there is zero risk to children. <clears throat> zero risk. We've heard that evidence. But we're already experiencing significant harm. Now, I ask you, if that is true, and everyone in this room believes it to be true, how, how is it that this is not criminal negligence? Our parents now, they, they should be asking themselves the questions. Are we committing criminal negligence? Should we be criminally charged and jailed if we vaccinate our children? Doctors and pharmacists should be asking themselves, 
Are we committing criminal negligence if we vaccinate anyone, but definitely a child, and if we encourage and pressure someone, some parent or caregiver to vaccinate a child? What about the media that is pushing vaccinations on children? Didn't our public health officer, Miss Tam, have a little Christmas call with Santa Claus or Mrs. Claus? Basically, you know, don't get on the naughty list, you get vaccinated. How can this be happening in Canada at this time with what we know? And how can public health in every province still be vaccinating children? You know, <clears throat> if it looks like a police state, if it smells like a police state, if it tastes like a police state, maybe it's a police state. We have just gone through mandatory masking. We have gone through lockdowns. We have gone through social shaming and division like we have never seen before in this country. We have treated unvaccinated people as if they were lepers. We restricted their rights. We shamed them. There was talk about not even allowing them to go for essential services. There were talks in some provinces of criminalizing it so there would actually be penalties on them. There was talk of putting unvaccinated people in camps. And I see people nodding their heads. They heard that too in Canada. But what shames me most about being Canadian is that we have undertaken these actions with more gusto and more support than any other police state that I am aware of. In a lot of police states, don't tell me in Stalinist Russia or, or East Germany that the citizens were enthusiastic and supported what was going on. It was quite the contrary. But here we are doing it with gusto, and still in full deception mode. Our government is not sharing with us the truth. The medical establishment is not sharing with us the truth, and the media is not. <clears throat> and this is happening today because we are not taking personal responsibility for our actions. It is happening because we, right now, you are the police state. You are the ones participating in the actions. It's not the leaders doing this. You are doing this. Media, you are doing this. You journalists, editors, you're doing this. Doctors, pharmacists, every citizen that's shaming and shunning and you know closing your mind, you are doing this. And the tactics to get you to do this is to put you in a state of fear, which they've done, and to convince you that this is for the greater good. You see, if you're doing things because it's necessary for the greater good, <clears throat> you're not taking personal responsibility for your actions. We don't have any choice. This is for the greater good. Do you, do you understand what I just said? The greatest danger to us as a society, to a free and democratic nation, our greatest danger is you not taking personal responsibility for your actions. And if you are convinced that you 
should be taking actions for the greater good, you have just committed the greatest act of treason that you can because you have abrogated your personal responsibility to the government. It is the tactic that is being used. You are being told you are not pulling the trigger. I am pulling the trigger. You do what we're tell, we tell you to do because it's necessary for the greater good. We cannot succeed as a free nation unless as citizens we take personal responsibility for everything we do. <clears throat> when I was um, probably about 12, I attended at the public library in Saskatoon and I saw a World War II film um, that changed my life. It was uh, <clears throat> somewhere in Eastern Europe. It was filmed by a German soldier just filming what that soldier's unit was doing. And what that soldier's unit was doing was they rounded up a, a bunch of town folk, lined them up against the wall, and shot them in a firing squad in retribution for partisan attacks. So this was murder of civilian population. There's no sound, and you know, in these old black and white movies, you got the lines, the whole thing. And so we see basically these town people being lined up against a wall, like literally a wall. It wasn't a field, it was a wall. And the soldiers all lined up. You can't hear anything, but you know, the order is, as you know, raise your rifles. And all the rifles get raised except one. One German soldier did not raise his rifle. And again, there's no sound, but you see the officer walk up and have a conversation with this soldier that refused to raise his rifle. And then I saw something that changed my life. The soldier laid down his rifle and walked to the wall with the villagers. And then the order was given and the rifles were raised again. And everyone along that wall, including that soldier, was shot. Now, <clears throat> we all know that our nation is changing. We all know that things have now gotten out of our control. And we have a decision to make. You can't avoid it any longer. You can't say, oh, I'm going to stick my head in the sand and the world's going to be okay next week, next month, next year. It's decision time. And so the decision you have to make is, which type of soldier are you going to be? Are you going to be one of the many soldiers that raised their guns and fired because they were ordered to do so? Or are you going to be that soldier that laid his gun down and walked to the wall? So, and I'm sorry that I got emotional, but... We are um, dealing with very serious matters, and this inquiry is, is dealing with very serious matters, and I guess we've seen a whole bunch of witnesses get emotional, so we have to forgive ourselves also. Um, <clears throat> we are going to have another day today that changes our lives. We are going to have another day where we have brave Canadians risking retribution for speaking to us. We're going to have some experts give us insight that we didn't have. And so, um, <clears throat> unless the commissioners have any questions or anything to say, I will introduce uh, one of our volunteer lawyers and we'll commence.
So um, I'd like to introduce Mr. Alan Rubin this morning. He's a, a lawyer in Toronto, a very established and esteemed colleague of mine, and I'm very pleased that he's assisting us. And he's going to come up and call our first witness. Uh, Mr. Uh, Jay McCurdy, I believe, is going to be appearing virtually. Hi there. Mr. McCurdy, how are you? Good, how are you, Alan? Very good. Um, so tell us a little bit about yourself. How old are you? What do you do? Uh, what's your educational background? I am an elementary school teacher for completing my 24th year in education. Uh, based in London, Ontario, with the Thames Valley District School Board, uh, 48 years old. Um, second gen third generation educator, actually. Grandmother was a kindergarten teacher. Mother was a high school English teacher for 30 years. So brother's a teacher. So it's kind of a family trade, if you will. And what grades do you teach? I teach uh, grades 7 and 8, uh, predominantly. Outside of one year of 24, I taught high school. Um, I trained, if you will, for, for high school with my intermediate senior qualifications, but ended landing in, uh, in a grade eight position and uh, haven't turned back since. And uh, in a nutshell, what's, what's the subject matter you want to talk about today? Well, you know, in large part with this whole inquiry and the whole COVID conversation, um, and I appreciate every aspect of it, and I agree with 95 to 99% of, you know, uh, all of the testimony that I've seen and, in, in large part, all the conversations that are dissenting conversations. Uh, um, I just really feel like something's missing from the conversation, and that's uh, a child-centered conversation. Um, it's egregious to me that we're... Um, even myself at times, we feel, I feel like I'm being selfish. I'm talking about how has COVID affected me? Um, how has COVID affected my parents who are close to 80? Nobody is emphasizing the children. And it's, to me, it's egregious that we're not having a conversation about the impacts on children. Children are the future. They're the primary resource. If we don't have children, then I don't think we have a future as a country, as a nation, as a planet. And I would like to emphasize that portion of the conversation and how important children are. Uh, to the future, and it's just it's it's just mind blowing to me. I've given up. I mean, my career has been spent. Uh, I mean, I love children. I have, I have a son and a stepson, and um, watching them go through COVID. I mean, it's just there's a level of selfishness to this that really bothers me in terms of the adults having the conversation about themselves. And uh, I guess I'm being extremely selfless. And if I sound um, holier than thou, that some people are not talking about the children, then forgive me, but I'm very passionate about this. I think you're referring to the impacts on children from the um, steps that were taken with respect to schools? Yes, and the greater, and the greater sort of, uh, not just the, the schools primarily, I can speak as a ground, uh, you know, a, a ground uh, on the, like a front sort of frontline worker on the ground, um, but also just the greater impacts of the COVID restrictions, the lockdowns, for example, um, and then the aftermath of COVID violence in schools and such. 
and stopping um, extracurricular activities and social interactions, correct? Oh, 100%, 1,000%. Um, I, mean, I heavily researched on this. I mean, I, when, I, when I come across an article or come across any sort of, you know, literature on this, it's just, it just, it perpetuates and sort of validates everything I've been experience, uh, experiencing. My observations, um, my understandings of the impacts, the negative impacts on children, and I live it day to day as a teacher. I, I see those is uh, corroborated with umpteen articles, uh, research evidence, and so forth. Right. So I, I have sort of two perspectives: a sort of a top-down one and a sort of a ground, uh, sort of on the ground, sort of face first. All right. And so, in in your specific school board, um, we know the lockdown started in March of 2020. What? Give us a little bit of the chronology there in terms of what was happening. Well, the lockdowns started in March of 2020. Um, I think it was March break. Um, and the Ford government sent us out for the duration of the school year. So we had a, you know, that was when COVID first hit and everybody was, you know, sort of wondering what the, uh, the you know, the level of severity of the threat was. And understandably so, we got sent, you know, online. Um, and there was a whole thing with that, how um, difficult that is in terms of logistics. But so, so that happened in the spring of 2020. Um, and there's, you know, all sorts of challenges with that. Um, some of the literature, I just, if I can just reference, I've got a few pieces. So I don't have screen, screen sharing capability, but I would like to share sort of a few items that um, corroborate sort of, as I said, it's sort of what I perceived as, um, the challenges of remote teaching at the time. Um, right. As I was sitting in front of this very computer trying to remotely teach for the first time, it was a new skill set that we were being asked to uh, administer. Um, this this first document here, I'll just hold it up short, uh, quickly, is the science table. Uh, it was the advisory panel that uh, Doug Ford had sponsored, um, published in June 4th of 2021. So that, I guess this would be reflective of the, uh, the challenges of remote learning. So there's just a, there's a passage here. Um, and ironically, the science table, if you're familiar, did recommend uh, Ontario was one of the most high, uh, in terms of jurisdictions, the Ontario uh, uh, province of Ontario was locked down four times in total, um, more than I believe any jurisdiction in the world. So this is where it becomes a problem for uh, Ontario-centric conversations. And that's, I mean, why I've experienced such uh, impacts from this but so i'll just read quickly just from the the science table advisory panel um comprised of many researchers and such uh impact on educators these policy changes had direct and indirect effect on students classroom context and their teachers in general the strongest in-school influence on teachers learning is their teacher teacher effectiveness is deeply shaped by the context in which they work covid 19 has radically disrupted these contexts with considerable impacts on teachers work as well as their own health and well-being. Teachers have needed to dramatically change how they teach with limited time uh, or specific training. Uh, they're supporting students, many of whom themselves are exceptional, uh, under exceptional stress. Uh, furthermore, they assume responsibilities associated with ensuring safety and, and their school under conditions that were considered by many to be unsafe. This is not a teacher. I'm not trying to have <laughs> this sounding like a teacher and sort of centric conversations. Um, i just jump to my other passage quickly here. Um, as well as learning to teach remotely, all teachers had to shift much of their teaching to a virtual environment, at least during the worst periods of the pandemic. This meant having to acquire or increase their own digital 
proficiency, which ranged from mastering technical tools to developing a pedagogy, such as managing group work, assessments online. It also meant developing digital proficiency with learning among their students and trying to cultivate capacities for self-education, self-determination among these learners so they could work independently at home while their teachers were working with other students or while uh, teachers, students themselves were working on uh, asynchronous tasks. That comes from the, uh, the RSC Children and Schools During COVID and Beyond, the Engagement and Connection Through Opportunity, publication uh, 2021. Um, so yeah, that was the challenges with um, All right, that, that was from the, the teacher's perspective as to the um, challenges that were faced by the teachers. Let's, let's, and I, let's look yeah, at and I, I'm gonna I'm going to leave that quickly. I just want to say that it's, that was a very disruptive thing. Um, that was to, for the government to pretend that online remote learning was effective and, uh, you know, how to, how to, the, the efficiency and the effectiveness of that was, was, was awful. And so that's the beginning of it. I'm pretending that it was okay. All right. And so we were talking about, you know, the spring of 2020. Just oh, give us the overview from spring of 2020 until today, let's say. Um, how much, what, what time period were the children actually in school for that, let's say, three-year period? So the spring of 20, we were off for the remainder of the school year in 2020. In 20, the school year 2021, we had um, a delayed entry in, 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 that, in the fall. Um, we did uh, come in, I think, in late September. We were off twice that year in the school year. We had a delayed uh, Christmas break. So we, we were in school with strict COVID measures for, for the fall, uh, heading up to the Christmas break. And then uh, they extended the, uh, the Christmas break, if you will. Um, I have my stats here. In, I mean, in total, I can tell you that Ontario students wrote for 28 weeks, which is an uh, incredible number. Um, we have a four-week extension after the Christmas break. Uh, that would be in 2021. Um, and then later that year, they delayed the spring break. We had our March break um, till April. Uh, I don't know the exact date, but they delayed the March or the March break till April, and we were off again for the rest of the balance of that year. And then the fourth and final lockdown came in the following school year, so 21, 22. Uh, they extended the Christmas break by I think it was eight days. So in total, over the span of you know uh, COVID, spring 20, and two school years subsequent to that, you're looking at 28 weeks of uh, uh, remote learning. Um, and that's remote learning, you know, the challenges of that. And then I can also speak to what's called, I call pandemic teaching, which is at school. Um, so 28 weeks in Ontario, um, the damage from that remote learning is, I mean, but the stories that, that came from colleagues, the challenges with remote learning, um, the family, the impact on families trying to manage their, their children at home. As a teacher myself, with, with the son who's in grade six, seven, eight at the time, trying to help him with his work, just um, again, I, I coped. I'm competent. I coped. But families that were just uh, disadvantaged, the literature says that in large part, the communities with, with uh, low access to internet, um, low income communities had virtually no experience with online. I mean, it's, it's egregious to think that everyone is sitting here with internet connection and access to computers and laptops and a large portion of the, you know, inner cities schools in Toronto and so forth, um, it was virtually non-existent. So to pre again, to pretend that remote learning was at all. Um, and again, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm just gonna jump ahead for a second here. Later on, I was hoping to talk 
about, you know, in Sweden, for example, the, the school-age children were not locked down uh, at all, not once. Um, there were different approaches with this around the world. Um, North America, you know, Canada specifically, in the United States, it seemed like the Western approach was a bit over the top. And if you look back over to Sweden, um, Sweden recently had a commission um, that reflected uh, on the, you know, the, basically the, the formalization of the government lockdowns in Sweden um, versus, uh, sorry, in, in Western countries versus Sweden's was more informal. Like, you know, we mask if you want to mask, distance, distance if you want to distance, you know, don't go to work if you're sick versus the mandated, you know, uh, directions from our governments. Um, they, didn't not, they did not close schools down in Sweden. It did not happen in elementary schools. So you have very extreme in Ontario versus, you know, the other end of the spectrum in Sweden. And I'm just trying to, <laughs> if we look at the data, um, the commission from Sweden, I'll hold this up right here. There was a commission held that um, Sweden's no lockdown COVID strategy was broadly correct, commission suggests. So they, they reflected on whether their uh, approach was, was okay or not. And essentially they're saying it was just fine. I mean, the stats on their deaths originally, they didn't lock down, might be a bit higher. Um, but if we talk about even the stats after the fact with uh we can talk about excess deaths and that whole conversation are really low in Sweden. So there's a whole other conversation there. This other research paper here, it's International Journal. Um, sorry, I'm forgetting. International Journal of Educational Research talks about the uh, the learning loss, uh, no learning loss in Sweden during the pandemic versus the literature that talks about the learning loss because of the lockdowns in Ontario. So there's uh, two. There's sort of two ends of the spectrum. And I mean, we can argue where that per Perfect, uh, that sweet spot would have been for locking down the children and not locking them down and so forth. Well, let, let's get to the um, learning consequences insofar as the uh, remote learning was concerned and the closing of schools. So tell us, you know, from your uh, personal perspective, what were you seeing with your students? So a, a large proportion of disengagement. So, for example, as a grady teacher, I would have, you know, close to 30 students in my class. And I, I saw a participation rate of 50% maximum. Uh, even Sorry, when you to, say participation rate, um, are you talking about showing up or, or participating in the events in, in the classroom you know, remotely? Uh, well, both, I suppose. Showing up means, you know, if you have a, a, a meet like we're having right now, a Google Meet where I'm instructing, you might have 50 to 60 percent in terms of showing up for the, you know, uh, for attendance in that class. Uh, in terms of submitting assignments, if you had, if I had posted assignment, you're down to a third, somewhere in the third range, 30 percent that would hand in something. Um, I mean, there there was a difference in 2020. There was a messaging that the children found out about that uh, it, it it didn't matter. Um, the direction from the board is that, and this is problematic for this to get out maybe to the public, is that assessments didn't matter. Uh, the, the philosophy was do no harm. So, for example, if students didn't participate, didn't submit their assignments, their marks could not go down. Um, they caught wind of this. I mean, students were choosing to go outside and play instead of doing schoolwork and knew their marks wouldn't go down. So... Um, when that messaging got out, participation in 2020 was low. Now, later in the pandemic, when we, we understood that we might be going back online and doing remote learning, um, assessments, evaluation would count a little bit higher. But uh, in, 20, in the 2021, in the, uh, I spoke to the spring and um, the summer, um, participation rates were still 50, 
maximum 50 in terms of handing assignments in 50. And they, and uh, sorry, at that time it was, the messaging was assignments will count uh, towards your mark and your mark can go down. So um, very low participation rate overall for all sorts of reasons I can imagine. And um, what about the actual learning, you know, from from the fact that this was being done remotely, how how did that impact on it from your perspective? Um, the, I mean, the quality of learning was was it was atrocious. I can imagine. I mean, the imp the importance of in in school learning is. I mean, the, the it's. I mean, the data suggests how important it is, how important the teacher is, how important social interaction is at school. It's it's pretty much uh, it, it's every it's everything. Um, it's critical extracurricular activities, the socialization of children. I mean, it's um, it's one thing to say. I was talking to a colleague the other day, but we had a reflection on this. You know, if an adult, um, you know, a university college age students are taking online courses. I took online courses to you know further my education. Um, we have learned to be <laughs> to be learners through the school system, leading up to a point. Um, the social interaction that children receive from school is. Um, you can't underscore how important it's, it's, it's critical. It's fundamental. It's how they learn to interact socially. Um, I see the outcome of this I see on a daily basis in terms of the, um, what was taken away, the opportunities. Imagine 28 weeks. We're talking about 28 weeks removed with remote learning. What about pandemic learning when the students were forced to, you know, in the year 20, the school year 2021, forced to distance, uh, during the whole year, it was distancing their desks apart. They were in cohorts on the schoolyard where they couldn't play with their friends. So you would have two classes, for example, uh, partnered up on our schoolyard. This is a large schoolyard. Um, some schools I can imagine have zero capacity for this. I'm not sure how they manage this, this, uh, this restriction, but two classrooms would partner up and play on one part of the yard. Um, and two other classrooms would partner up and play on the other part of the yard and they could not interact. It was a strict rule that students, so imagine your best friend is in cohort B and you're in cohort A and you can't walk over across a line to go talk to your, uh, your best friend who's been cohorted and a separate, uh, been segregated from you. Just little things like that. I mean, the psychological damage, and it's some of the students being far too young to understand, why can't I go talk to my friend? Um, in, inside the classroom, you've got uh, limits on how you can teach during the pandemic, what you can use as materials. I mean, I can't run science experiments. Um, computers had to be covered with cellophane and wiped down with, you know, spray after use. You, uh, um, in gym class, you could only place uh, the games where the kids were distanced apart. They couldn't actually come in contact. Um, I, I could go all on all day long with just those, like I said, as a teacher, they're experiencing the, you know, the children, um, how they were being asked to learn, the conditions of which were atrocious for learning, um, wearing masks the whole time. Um, it's a whole other thing, right? Um, some, it's just, it's sometimes arbitrary. I can tell you a quick story about masking is that masking was, you know, enforced incredibly for, uh, for the two school years, 2021 and 21, 22 was enforced strictly for three quarters of that time. It was in the spring of 2022 where the students could, we could demask and the regulations, uh, um, were, were lessened. If a student, you know, I'd often see staff members yell at students for not having their masks on. Get your mask on. Masks would slip down. So they're constantly being told, get your mask up. During eating time, of course, masks can come up and they can eat. Um, but they can't talk. If they were talking, they would yell that by the supervisor. Get, you know, you can't talk. You're either eating or you're talking. If you're talking, your mask is on. So 
that's a for almost two years a hard thing for a little kid to kind of navigate you can imagine um stressful for the teachers to feel like they had to enforce that the whole time um and those are just sort of minor things but very major things that the outcome of that i feel has been deeply felt by you know the students and uh, their, their age of development, not understanding what was going on, why, and being so fearful of the whole the whole time. And as we all know right now, the the case fatality rate for children is incredibly low. They were never at risk. I think after two years in the pandemic, there were 20, uh, 20 Canadians under the age of 20 that had died from COVID. To this day, it's it's under 100. And some of those cases we know were died with COVID and died from COVID, whatever that means. Anyway. So as you're seeing the students coming up now, uh, into your grades, um, what are what are you observing in terms of their, you know, skill levels, their learning levels? Are they where you would expect them to be for that grade level? Far behind, far behind where they're supposed to be. And this is where you know my twenty four years of teaching. I mean, if you're running an experiment, and you were controlling variables. I mean, I've only taught grades seven and eight. For twenty, so for twenty-three years, I've taught this age group. So, if you're running a controlled experiment, I can speak to what are the differences you see, and are they causal or correlational or coincidence? Um, this is where I would say I did the clear, the anecdotal data, data backed up with the research says that the this, the lag in the skill sets is there in terms of academic lags. Of course, um, we're trying to catch young children up with with just learning uh, how to read and write. Uh, at, a, at a basic level, at an intermediate level where I'm at, it's um, it's learning skills in large part. What I'm seeing, I'm seeing a lack of resiliency, problem solving, uh, coping, um, co levels of confidence. Uh, they uh, their ability, sort of, to you know, if I was to give a mundane task, to persist with it, with resiliency, and work through it. Um, there's the the learning skills. Uh, lag and deficit is immense. Um, I struggle with it every day. I've, I'm looking to still give accommodations. Um, the help that I have to give to children, the extra help that I have to give to them to um, move through a given task, the extra time that I have to give to them, um, and just their ability. Like if I have a, let's say I'm giving, I, I teach a unit, I'm just finishing up a unit on, uh, for example, right now we're doing angles, we're doing a angle relationships, you know, I teach it, let's say it's a two week unit on that. And then I, I mean, I'm pretty old school. I give a quiz and, you know, the, the acquisition of the information, the knowledge, how to learn um, would be, I mean, it's just, you know, a certain sort of expectation that I have versus I teach for two weeks and I administer a quiz and it's, it's just not there. They're not acquiring the knowledge at the same rate. They're struggling even with test taking. There's anxiety, massive amounts of anxiety with test taking. Um, so many things that I'm seeing uh, in terms of that. So, and then on a social level, you can imagine um, the violence is up in schools. That was another aspect I was going to speak to is their ability to, to relate to each other or the lack thereof will equate to conflicts, of course. And there's, as a teacher, there's all sorts of fights on in the schoolyards every year. Um, kids are kids and that's how they learn too. They learn through conflicts, right? So it's important to know how to, you know, if you got into a fight, why you got into a fight, um, you learn from that. You learn what mistakes you made as an individual, how to reconcile that and, uh, you know, make up and move on sort of thing. I'm seeing a higher prevalence of interactions that are, that come from nowhere. Uh, a basketball game on the yard breaks into a fight and it broke into a fight over 
Um, I teach grade eight, straight grade eight this year, and I tell my boys I'm a basketball coach. Uh, we actually had a very successful season. We won our our West Region with the uh, with first place gold medal. So very proud of that. But on the yard when they're playing ball, it's you know the slightest things turn into a conflict or a fight, and I'm just constantly dealing with you know. And the, I say pre-COVID that that instance of two boys you know posturing one another after a basket is made wouldn't have wouldn't have turned into a, perhaps a fight or something like that. On a grander scale, there's um, especially the Toronto board they're dealing with just high levels of extreme violence in the school board um anyway i'll, I'll stop there alan and let you continue in terms of the um deaf learning deficits what in your view is the primary reason for that well with, without a doubt just all of the uh, closures closure of schools and I mean, I can speak to Ontario, like I said, 28 weeks of remote learning. I mean, comparative to what, three years in the pandemic, um, you know, maybe that's not the bigger part would, I mean, collectively, I'm looking at everything compressed into, you know, three years of the education system being affected and altered uh, as, as deeply as it was. It's with, it's, I mean, the evidence is in front of my face every day. And I talk to colleagues and they, they're talking about the problems at school that we're seeing and everything. And my response is, well, what do you think is going to happen if you enact these measures? I mean, this is, we're living through this for the first time. So you can either correlate this, you can say, or a cause, you know, causal connection that the students are suffering and lagging and violence is up because of COVID, or it's just, it's no, it's just, it's, it's some other variables at play here. So, um, I think it's, it's clearer than clear. I mean, to me, it's clear that, uh, if you don't, I mean, the disruption in, in the system and the disruption of learning and the disruption of, of uh, social gatherings and the normal life uh, that the children were expecting to uh, experience, um, that's, you don't have to be a rocket scientist. You don't have to be, you don't have to be a, a research scientist to see that, of course, this is the disruption in their social lives, primarily over even their academic life was, was incredibly damaging. I mean, my son had his 13th birthday turning into a teenager. Um, what was the gatherings? You couldn't gather at that point. I mean, you're having a, you know, uh, a special birthday for my son and it's a COVID birthday. It's no one, he can't have a birthday party, you know, and that's fine. He had lots of birthday parties leading up to that. But imagine the young children, their first birthday party, you know, their fifth birthday party. Um, how important that is, you know, the, watching the little kindergartners, you know, around the school, how, how, we had an assembly yesterday. Uh, we're having assemblies, you know, for the first time in the last year where the school gathers in one area. And it's just, you know, I was up in front of the school um, presenting and down in front you have the young kindergartners and they don't have their masks on and they're looking up all bright eyed and, um, and, and wonderful and they're, they're just so happy to be there. And it's just amazing. You know, that, that, was, that experience was stripped from them for, you know, two full years pretty much. How can you argue that wouldn't be problematic or detrimental to their, you know, their, uh, to their growth and development? It's, it's, it's pretty clear, actually. So you were obviously concerned about this as it was going on. What about your colleagues? What, what was the talk within, you know, the teacher community as opposed to the, you know, administrators? What was the feeling amongst the the teachers so far as you're concerned? I would suggest that it was sort of, um, I mean, we're kind of like frontline workers. I don't know if there was, 
on a day-to-day -day basis, much reflection. It was just get through the day. You know, it was a lot of stress. COVID teaching was very stressful, especially in 20, the school year 2021 and even the fall of uh, 21, the next school year, you know, getting through the day was just like uh, triage. It was getting, just get through the school day. We all know it's just how challenging it is to to teach under COVID conditions and restrictions and limitations in the school setting. What you're used to being able to do versus what you're being forced to do. Just such a challenge. I mean, we were all thinking it. We were all uh, living it. Um, I don't think there was much discussion. It's almost like it's not even close to be uh, in terms of equating it to healthcare. what it would have been like to work in a hospital, um, you know, during the, the heavy waves, perhaps where the stress level on the nurses and such and the system is collapsing because there isn't enough staff. Right. So and that's another thing that happened, basically, was that during COVID, the, the stress level, uh, stress levels of teachers went up and a lot of teachers retired early. They went off on stress leaves and such. Um, so we were living it and just, we weren't discussing it too much, but it's almost like you wink and nod to your colleague and say, you know, here's another COVID day. Um, our, we have a board in our office where it's an absentee board and it, you know, you can walk in on any given day and see the, which staff are off and who's filling in for them. Um, something became sort of very, uh, patterned during COVID is that the board would be full, it would be long, full, and, uh, um, you would have multiple staff off during any given day because of various reasons. Maybe they had COVID, maybe they were sick, but other other parts were stress leaves were high. Um, it was basically triage in the school system for a better, better part of two years. And we're just coming out of that now in terms of like the system not collapsing. And this is just one school and one school board. I'm in London. I, I mean, I, I can't imagine what it was like in other jurisdictions like Toronto. Um, there was just two references here I wanted to find quickly in that regard too. Forgive me for... Uh, through my papers here. There's one reference quickly in terms of the, um, I call it the system damage. Uh, this is, again, this is coming from the, uh, the science advisory, science table of COVID-19 advisory panel. Um, by the way, this was something that Doug Ford did have his, uh, sorry, the Ford government had their hands on um, prior to the uh, final and fourth lockdown in 2022. And what they were advising uh, Ford government not to lock us down for the fourth time. This panel, this paper basically was the proof uh, in the pudding that we should avoid lockdowns at all costs with children. And uh, we've already had three, but he disregarded that and locked us down for the fourth time. So back to my, uh, the system damage. Uh, this is a pay, uh, from page eight in that, uh, that paper. Um, a highly, uh, this would be probably, I think elementary perspective where there is a higher proportion of female teachers. A highly feminized workforce, educators as a group were particularly affected by carrying responsibilities for their own children at home while continuing to work. A national survey suggests that teachers have experienced considerable stress and burnout during COVID-19. There are further reports of teacher shortages resulting from leaves and attrition from the profession in light of COVID-19 context. As a result of these shortages, exceptional measures such as allowing student teachers temporarily teaching certificates, and in some cases hiring non-teachers were undertaken. Um, there may be long-term effects on the profession in terms of the teacher supply. And I've got a, a quick story for you. Uh, one other reference very quickly um, from a article from, this is the National Post author, Paul Bennett, uh, speaking to violence in schools, February 27, 2023. Uh, I'm just going into the fourth page. Amid, this is a U.S. perspective. Amid, amid, uh, amid fears of a national U.S. teacher shortage, the National Education Association now claims that half of all American teachers have reported considering or actively planning to quit because of deteriorating school climate and safety. Uh, it says so far, this has not reached that crisis point in Canada's systems, but I would argue that it has. Um, one quick story, I think it was a couple of months ago, I had a supply teacher come in 
And this is how bad it is right now. Um, we're pulling um, teachers' colleges now to your program. They're pulling teacher uh, teacher candidates from the, the programs, either first or second year, and employing them as supply teachers. Uh, and even worse than that, we've got, I know in Toronto, my brother teaches in Toronto, and it happens to me is that they have uh, three teachers' college candidates. So you've got someone just at an undergrad degree, uh, let's say third or fourth fourth year with an undergrad. Um, um, I don't know who comes in the room and I don't know who asked the question, would you like to go teach in a school tomorrow? Um, and so this this wonderful young lady came in and gave it, gave it her best, but um, had no business being in front of uh, the kids that day. You can imagine that just the, we're trying to close the gaps there. Healthcare is even worse. Um, teaching is right behind probably. Sounds like it's a vicious circle. Absolutely. Um, what are some of the other system impacts that you're seeing and have observed? Uh, system impacts, the, the two just are the resources, like I'd mentioned, just maintaining the school's integrity, uh, the school system integrity, so having enough quality staff and teachers in front of the children. Um, that's still very prevalent and pervasive. Um, the only other, well, the other system damage would be, like I spoke of, was, was the violence in schools where um, the stress on the system right now is difficult. Administrators are really struggling to um, balance, you know, the proceedings of, of their school in terms of, you know, administering education and every day and, and it's managing the building with just the, the prevalence of misbehavior and you know, in an elementary school, we're not, we might not use the, the word, I mean, we can use the word violence, but I mean, we're talking about, you know, children having temper tantrums and throwing chairs and there, there are staff getting hit with chairs, there's staff getting hit with items and some of these special needs scenarios are, are sort of extreme, but um, administrators are having um, a heck of a time trying to sort of navigate and mitigate sort of the outcome in terms of how the children are coming out of COVID, it's, I just think that the system damage is that um, there's just pressure to keep the school healthy, uh, the school system's healthy so that learning can happen. I mean, learning is critical and learning is being compromised right now with the, um, the collective stress of the children and the collective stress of the adults combined with sort of this misbehavior um, is just making teaching and learning challenging on a day-to-day -day basis. And it's, it is, it's very challenging. I'm like I said. I'm experienced, very experienced at my job, but I'm seeing um, younger teachers uh, not equipped to cope with with this, and and uh, younger and younger administrators not equipped to cope with uh, managing it as well in terms of the the higher level of misbehavior and violence in the schools. Have you heard of or uh, been party to any discussions from officials in the Ministry of Education? where there is some sort of recognition or acknowledgement that locking down the schools, closing them down and moving to remote learning was, was a problem, was something that shouldn't have been done. Is there any sort of we're talk not, like that? Yeah, we're not, we're not seeing anything. I'm not seeing anything from our jurisdiction in Ontario from our, I mean, on a board level or provincial level. The only thing I was able to, I was curious myself about this was the, find was an, from the United States. Um, there's an article here I can show in the Wall Street Journal. It's from the, the Union. It's written from the Wall Street Journal author. Sorry. Um, right. Uh, uh, I've sorry, given, read, given read that to the, 
I've given that to the commissioners. One of them is an editorial in the um, Wall Street Journal from November 2nd, 2022. And I'll just read the opening sentence. Believe it or not, American Federation of Teachers Chief Randy Weingarten on Monday tacitly acknowledged that keeping schools closed during the pandemic was a mistake. Miracles happen, apparently. Um, But what is being mentioned here is that Ms. Weingarten and her colleagues, um, and needless to say, the same is true in Canada, they were the ones who were pushing for this um, with the greatest... um, you know, enthusiasm from day one, right? It was, yeah, from the, from the union perspective, there's another whole another you know, can of arms there where it's, you know, they're trying to protect their members. And I would imagine, you know, many teachers wanting the schools closed down permanently just in fear of COVID. And uh, some of the research says that in large part, COVID wasn't transmitted in schools. It was tr- transmitted through community, meaning that the uh, children who picked up COVID got it from their homes. They didn't get it at school. So um, the union perspective, uh, the union approach uh, in terms of their messaging would have been, let's protect our members. And the best way to protect our members is to not be at school at all. So, um, but now like that article you referenced there, I have that article. The the author of that, uh, uh, sorry, there was another article referenced in the Atlantic by Emily Oster. Oster cites school closures as one example. There's an emerging, if not universal, consensus that schools in the U.S. were closed for too long. The health health risks in school spread were relatively low, whereas the cost to students' well-being and educational progress were high. Um, That's pretty much a snapshot right there. It it seems to me um, that the thinking that went into this uh, is quite similar to the thinking that went into COVID policies generally, which was there there wasn't any real assessment of the of the costs versus the benefits. Is is that a fair statement? That's absolutely my, my mantra. My mantra has been cost benefit analysis from day one. Um, the cost benefit analysis in terms of the, the, the perspective of the child, I mean in context of learning, I mean, they spend a lot of time at school. So it's important that that, that, that experience is on the table for them, but just generally on a societal level as well. Um, the, the cost, what we ask students to do through the pandemic, um, like I said, case, case fatality rate, COVID uh, infection rate even was, was low with children. Um, it was been, been proven that the, they lacked the ACE2 receptor in the nasal cavity to even, for COVID to even sort of stick. Um, and when they got sick, they didn't get that sick at all. In fact, post-COVID, the, the RSV, that respiratory illness, I mean, my anecdotal evidence says it took down a lot of kids in a lot more severity than COVID did during COVID. Um, but yeah, like in terms of greater societal level, the damage is there um, over, over that time. Um, Cost-benefit, it's just unbelievable what we asked the kids to do and what we took from them versus, I mean, if from a child perspective, you're, you should be working as a society to, to protect your children. I mean, we should we should think about that, right? Um, there was a story. My, my one evidence piece I wanted to reference here that speaks to that. There was a you, some of you um, commissioners included might be familiar with the Great Barrington Dec- Declaration, um, written by 
co-authored by, by three significant uh, doctors. One of them, Dr. Jay Bhattacharya, was a prof at Stanford. He's got a PhD in economics and focuses on health economics. Um, he, I watched a podcast with him recently where he referenced a, uh, I'm not sure if he was an author or researcher, last name Kostakis, in a pediatric journal. From the spring 2020 closure, this is citing uh, data that it's estimated that 5.5 million life years have been taken from children from that ones from that particular time frame um, is, is a very staggering stat. Um, you're taking life years away from the children. My father, who's 79 years old, old had a stroke uh, about six months ago. My father lived a long, full life. You know, it's tragic when anyone when anyone's life ends, and it's sad. But he, you know, he's 79. Uh, he's now 79, and uh, Pops has lived a long, uh, amazing life, and it's difficult uh, watching him in the aftermath of his stroke. But, um, you know, he ha he's lived his life. These children haven't lived their lives yet. It's just, just mind-blowing to me what, what we've done, the damage that we've potentially done. Without that calculation, Alan, what you said about that cost-benefit, there is, in my opinion, there is zero cost-benefit done, absolutely none. What's What's really troubling about this, it seems to me, is that um, the children can't advocate for themselves. We're, you know, collectively, adults are the decision makers. And um, uh, it's hard not to reach the conclusion that we failed our younger generation here. What do you say? I think we failed them in every way possible. I can't imagine failing them any more than, than we have. I, I don't know. It sounds very pessimistic and extremist to say this, but I, I, there, we have a struggle in front of us right now. It's not, it's not, um, I, I'm not making this up. I'm watching it. I'm just wondering what that long-term impact's going to be. Um, longitudinal studies and such that are going to be able to even correlate this and say, you know, how are we going to be able to look back in 10 or 20 years in terms of economic, you know, activity and the GDP and, and say well, it's because of, uh, you know, COVID, you know, of course this is happening. There would be no admission of that anyway. It's going to be blamed on other variables and factors 10, 20 years down the road. But um, I just really have a, I have a gut, gut suspicion. I have, I have lots of papers around sitting around me right now that are studies and professionals that say this is going to be a problem. Um, very smart people that are acknowledging it as opposed to, not acknowledging it um so i, th I think that's important that if we, you know if we could you know my, my here's my, my takeaway with this is to not make this mistake again is you know we might be paying a large price for this down the road and that's something we have it's inevitable it's, it's going to come at us and we'll just have to manage it but we better not do this again the same way there needs to be a cost benefit analysis at the very least and a conversation where all stakeholders are allowed into the conversation. It's not just the government dictating. It's, uh, it's everyone having a voice. And that's why I really appreciated being able to testify here is giving the average citizen that voice. Um, there's a lot of us that are highly intelligent uh, that are in this room today that have a lot of perspectives and a lot of stories. We don't need to do fancy research papers to understand this has been impactful in, in, in a in negative way across all sectors, uh, across the economy. Um, I have a friend who lost his job from COVID. I have had watched small businesses close during COVID. Uh, it's just, if you don't, you don't have to look at papers to see it. You just look out on your front, you know, your front stoop and walk, look outside and see the damage in your neighborhood, your community. 
there were some personal perspectives that you wanted to share. Is there anything else that you wanted to say on that? Um, tell, tell us about just, the impacts of, you, you talked about the impacts of remote learning, but what about the masking when the kids were even in, in the classroom? What, what do you see as the impact of that? Well, the masking was a symbol of, of fear. So there's a psychological impact of, you know, what we sort of sent this message that we're going to go to school and we're going to wear masks and be careful if you catch COVID. It's very dangerous. It, something can happen to you. Um, so that was when the data came in. I mean, like I said, in 2020 and then a lot of the research, you know, medical research scientists started collecting the data and the hospital data came in. It, it became evident that COVID wasn't directly a threat to children. But the masking, you know, at schools, when, when it's a room full of children, um, if I'm not sick, if I'm not symptomatic, and this whole nonsense about asymptomatic, uh, you know, carrying COVID asymptomatically, I don't buy it. Um, if you're not symptomatic, I don't, I don't, I'm pretty sure you're not going to, you're not going to give it, but that's my personal perspective. But the symbolism of the masking was, per, per, uh, was pervasive because of, I think, the fear. Your children are like, what's, why are we wearing masks? What's, what's going on here? Um, it's just, it was outside of trying to teach with a mask, with the masks on, listening to children talk and trying to teach with a mask on and the limited sort of, you know, uh, sonic experience, we'll call it, was, was challenging. Um, but, you know, when masks came down, I, I mean, and I watched staff actually berate children, get your mask back up. Right. Um, that, that's, that's a whole other component. Um, but the damage of the masks, I don't know. I don't know. It just it was a symbol of fear. Um, after the masks were here's, here's sort of a, an anecdotal observation. After the mask restrictions were lifted, children still continued to wear masks in large part in the school setting. Um, still fearful of I mean, either. I can imagine their parents may have said you need to wear a mask still, but a lot of children chose to wear one. A higher higher grade students, grade seven, eight, were still wearing them for some time. And. Um, I was sort of of the mantra, it's time to take them off, it's time to breathe, it's time to see your face, it's important. Um, so take them off, take them off. I mean, I wasn't pushing it, I was just sort of advocating for it and sending subtle messages that it was important. There's a, I'll just read a quick, uh, a quick excerpt from this article. It's uh, from the American Institute of Economic Research. Uh, it's got page 5 of 11. Just a quote about masking that I sort of highlighted. Concerns are being raised regarding psychological damage and why, uh, why a mask is not just a mask. There, there is tremendous psychological damage to infants and children with potential catastrophic impacts on the cognitive development of children. This is even more critical in relation to children with special needs, those within the autism spectrum who need to be able to recognize facial expressions as part of their ongoing development. The accumulation, uh, sorry, the accumulating evidence also suggests that prolonged mask use in children or adults can cause harms. Uh, so much so that Dr. Blaylock states the bottom line is that if you are not sick, you should not wear a mask. Furthermore, Dr. Blaylock writes, by wearing a mask, the exhaled viruses, okay, we won't get into that part, but the psychological damage. I have a, a stepson who has special needs, uh, diagnosed with autism disorder, who basically stopped going to school because of mask wearing. He was unable to attend school and wear a mask. It wasn't, it wasn't possible for him to do that. Um, no didn't, couldn't wear a mask. It's a, it's a sensory, it's a sensory issue. It's, uh, you know, it's just so school was taken away from him because of a mask, and that's that's factual. Wonder if there's any questions from the panel. 
Thank you. Thank you very much for your testimony. Uh, I have two questions. First one is, in your experience as a frontline teacher, can we get out of all of the damage that was done on the, on the kids unless the institution is willing to admit that this was wrong? How can you convince kids that wearing masks is, is not no longer necessary, but was never necessary in the first place? Is that, is that something that you think it's possible within our current school system? I think it involves conversations. I think it involves information. And, you know, there's a lot of information flying around. Um, you know, information can come from studies like this. Information can come from various sources. It's just, it's a, it's a conversation. It's a conversation, um, an acknowledgement of, the, maybe if we're going back to the cost benefit, I'm not sure. Like uh, Alan had mentioned, the adults are, that are in charge have an obligation. I mean, the students themselves aren't going, they're going to take a lead on the adults. So it's a reflection on, it's a cost benefit that needs to be reflected upon and in the future needs to be done. So for example, in the future, if something comes along, it's like, remember what masking did to children before, do we really want to do it again? I mean, we can't go back in time and change what ha happened, but I mean, one of my things is moving forward is ensuring that this, these sorts of things don't happen again unless they're absolutely necessary and we can prove it and not just sort of, you know, it's just messaging. It's, it's like a top down, you, thou shalt, you know, um, thou shalt mask. And my information tells me that even in jurisdictions like Sweden, that masking was optional. You know, just let citizens decide to wear a mask. Let people can wear a mask if they want to wear a mask. But, you know, the, the forcefulness of it is damaging, right? So just a reflection, just an honest reflection and conversation. Um, there's lots of studies out there that say masking is ineffective. So let's just grab onto those studies and perpetuate the information as not disinformation, but actual studies. So just keep studies, keep be open, be mindful to competing studies, um, and and be open and mindful to the conversation. That that that, that uh, authoritarian sort of approach is not really a pleasant approach. At the end of the day, my my other question is: I I think I hear you said that the damage, if you want, to the learning was probably more profound for for students that had more difficulty of learning or because they couldn't access as readily to good internet or other technology or support from family or community. So these children are probably more at risk to suffer the long-term consequences of the, of, of the lockdowns and all of the measures. So is there a plan that is put in place right now by the institution in order to address this need that was created by the lockdowns and all of the measure that probably affected even more this population of students that have issues with learning? Well, because we're in a crisis of funding, I think in large part, I mean, it's, it's, it's throwing, I mean, money can solve a lot of problems. I mean, you have re the resources, human resources are, have to be in place, I guess, first. And right now there's, there's a lack of human resources, right? There's a decline in the, people are leaving the profession, teachers are leaving. So are we going to be able to, to um, replace the workforce? Um, right now it's not looking so good. Um, like I said, we're bringing in university students that may or may not even become teachers and throwing them in the classroom to basically perhaps try their best, but in large part, maybe babysit for the day. Um, we have, my, my wife actually works with special needs. She's an educational assistant and, uh, 
they're they're highly trained professionals who who have different sorts of degrees. They can be have PSW. They can have uh, child psychology, for example. There's all sorts of uh, different sort of uh, educational sort of skill sets they bring, um, and highly trained and skilled professionals. So my wife, for example, works with um, high needs children, and so um, in, in going off with uh, being off a few times and watching um, the replacements that are coming in, they're they call them paid volunteers, which doesn't make sense. I know they're not they're volunteering, but they're getting paid. Our board has brought in basically people off the street that want to make some money and work with children that, you know, maybe may provide a background criminal check and want to make some money and maybe they love children and want to help out, but that's fine. But these these workers are coming in and they're replacing the professionals who have the credentials and experience and education with zero credentials, experience, and education, have no business being working with those children. It basically becomes a babysitting role. And it becomes a safety issue because, in large part, the training of an educational assistant deals with high behavior and mitigating damage when uh, special needs children are having, let's say, you know, a bad day. Um, so the damage can be confounded when you have people that uh, don't know what they're doing, um, trying to manage a situation that's that's, that's problematic, and that it's, now you have two problems on hand, right, instead of one. So... Uh, I don't see the human resources right now. I'm not sure how we, uh, I mean, with the baby boomers, we can get into uh, a demographic conversation about our aging population, but I'm not sure we're going to be able to find the human resources to, uh, in terms of education and even healthcare and other sectors. I'm not sure. Uh, you look at, look at outside in the community, all the help wanted, uh, all the unemployment sort of, um, the signs help, help here, help everywhere, right? So it's not being fulfilled. And then from a money standpoint, I mean, you can, so let, let me let me stop you, Mr. McCurdy, because I think we're running out of time, and some of the other commissioners might have some questions. So, yeah, let's uh, if you don't mind, let's get to those. Not a problem. Good morning, Mr. McCurdy. Thank you for coming and appearing before us. I have a few questions, um, and some of them are related to testimony we heard from previous witnesses. We heard testimony from witnesses that were attacked. Uh, there was one um, yesterday who was shopping in Walmart and she reported how she was attacked and people stood by. There was one in Truro where a gentleman went into a Canadian tire and was attacked. I, I wonder, you talk about fear in the children. And, I, and to my mind, this these attacks, these these reactions by people, including our officials and police, were due to what I would call terror. And you talked about fear in the children. But in my mind, there's a difference between fear and terror. And the adults were experiencing terror in the way they acted towards their neighbors, to their families. But adults have certain capacities and certain experiences would allow them to hopefully temper those emotions. So what levels of terror or fear did you see in these children who did not have the capacity to temper that? Well, that's a, that's a very interesting observation you've made there. I, would, uh, I haven't thought of that. Um, it's, it sounds very valid to me. That's, that's certainly possible. Like what you said, the capacity to uh, handle your emotions and... Um, and not so we've learned as we were all in development how to handle you know, our emotions and cope. And so you're, maybe you're not you're seeing a lag in, in a sort of I don't want to say ability or skill set, but yeah, reacting and sort of having that emotional overlay of being living in constant fear. And um, so perhaps you're seeing yeah um, inability to cope, and that's just playing out in real time. 
in terms of excess sort of incidents of violence in, in the school setting. Just maybe it's a their exercise. Their it's just coming out. Everything's coming out right now. Um, whether they're contemplating I'm doing something bad or not bad, it could just could be pure energy coming. It was contained, and now the energy is coming out. It's not. It's, it's not good energy. In in your class or in your school or with uh, colleagues that you have discussed, have you uh, noticed any? a perceptible increase in suicide, self-harm with the kids following the lockdowns and return to school or during the lockdowns? I can't speak to, to that data, I, on a, sort of on a personal level. Um, I do see a, lar a larger proportion of what I would consider despondent children who, who look that, like they're struggling in terms of depression. Uh, and that translates into absenteeism rates as well. So I'm seeing a higher than average absenteeism rate. Children that are still uh, sort of disengaged from school um, and despondent when at school. So there's a, certainly a larger proportion of, of those children that are, that are struggling on a day-to-day -day basis and struggling to be at school, to get to school. So as I said, there's some, there's some stats there that are saying coming out of the pandemic, they're, they're still certainly struggling on an emotional level, um, absolutely. Were VAX mandates imposed on teachers? Not in uh, my jurisdiction. So with Thames Valley, they, they were not. And the only, I think the only jurisdiction in Ontario was Toronto. Uh, teachers had to get, uh, were, were mandated. Okay. Were, um, how did, did, did the administration or the government, to your knowledge, come to the teachers themselves or teachers' organizations and review with them what they were considering as mandates prior to, in, to uh, implementing them? In other words, did you have a say? Well, that's, no, of course. I, I think that was one of my biggest concerns was having a voice, having a, no, it was, it was directed, it's all top-down direction, thou shalt, um, and a lot of pressure. I mean, there's peer pressure. There's also pressure from your employment. Messaging from your employers about this is this all needs to be followed and strictly followed and so on and so forth. So that's a lot of that's a lot of psychological pressure in and of itself to be told this is how this is all going to play out. All the restrictions and all of the COVID sort of uh, uh, the overlays, like I was talking about, like the hand sanitizing, for example, and the mask wearing of the keyboard covering, the keyboard wiping down, and all those sorts of things. There's it's just sort of like a memo. This is the memo, and we're all to follow it from a managerial level. Well, you're looking at risking probably disciplinary if you walked outside of those uh, expectations. My last question, I have two sons who are teachers, and I know that on a regular basis they go for additional training. There's, uh, I guess what I would, they don't call them this anymore, but they're in-service days and they go to take courses. Prior to 2020 pandemic, did any of the teachers receive any training with regard to potential pandemics and what should be done to, to, to reduce spread? And were you made aware of any pandemic planning that was in place prior to 2020? Absolutely not. That would have been virtually impossible, right? I think on many fronts, it was almost like, you know, this was all after the fact, right? The pandemic is in place and let's figure out how we're going to yeah, I mean, moving forward, maybe it's something where we we should reflect on this and say, hey, listen, like next time, here's again what we do, what we don't do, and um, no, it was just throwing at teachers. Like we, this is what we're doing. We're walking into school, and we're I'm 
spray painting dots on the ground with a spray paint can in, out front of my portable so the students can stand on these dots and be two meters apart. And when they get inside, the desks are supposed to be two meters apart and, uh, you know, masks will be on. It was just, it was all just real time figuring it out on the fly, which for teachers was, was stressful. Yeah, you've probably heard stories considering your, your children are teachers. It's like just, you, you need to just figure this out, teachers, and you need to just make it happen. And, uh, we're not, I'm not a healthcare professional. No, I'm not. I mean, my skill set is limited to what I have, but just enacting and following through and trying to make sure these all of these requests, we'll call them, were, were, were followed was challenging in and of itself. Right. So um, very stressful for sure. Thank you. Good morning. I have so many questions. So I'm not really sure where to begin. But I would like to ask, the line that we hear from the school boards in Ontario is that, well, we've lost two years of learning to COVID. I'm just wondering, do you ever, as a teacher, do you believe that we will ever recapture those two years of learning that these children have lost? My perspective and answer to that is that there, there's, I don't think it will be recovered wholly. I think there's going to be a, a gap, always be a gap. I don't know how you can I'm not sure how you close that. I don't. I think that this is why I'm so passionate. I think that the, the you know the formational years of a child. Let's say they say the most important years in the life of a human is between zero and zero and five, for example. I don't. I'm not a psychologist. I, I just can only venture to say that the damage that was done, the COVID babies and such. I I don't think you can recover that wholly. I just it's my my gut feeling. Um, from an adolescent standpoint. Um, there was one study that I that I read that said that the damage, the most damage to the adolescent age group was age, age fifteen to eighteen, somewhere in that range, where the psychological damage on on them was greater than other age cohorts. And uh, you could probably make an argument that every single kid, no matter their age, experienced that. I don't know. I don't. I mean, people can say, "Yeah, we'll close the gaps. Everything will. It'll work out. They'll be fine." The kids are resilient. Is the what I hear all the time is that you know. Kids are resilient. Um, we, you know, they'll get through it. We'll be okay. So, I mean, there's that argument as well as that. Ah, it's what's the? You can downplay all of this and say that they'll be fine. It's all. It'll all just work out in the end. And but the problem with that is that you can't you can't project into the future and then look back and then change it if you find the, the results you don't don't like and agree to that we messed up and go back in time and fix it. That's the problem. Is that it's a it's a catch twenty two or something like this. And in terms of going forward, we have school boards at this point in Ontario who have decided that the last set of standardized tests that were uh, given to the students will be the new bar, the new standard for education going forward. Do you see some serious issues with that mindset that we're just going to take the bar that comes after COVID as opposed to the standardized test results that came before COVID in terms of our long-term research into how our children are faring and how their reading and writing skills are being projected going forward? Well, we have to absolutely maintain the pre-COVID bar. We have to, I mean, yeah, we have to, we can't lower the bar. We have to put it back up. And that's what I've been trying to do in my classroom is I've slowly been, so the analogy would be like high jump or moving into track and field season would be to lower the bar down so that everyone can have success. But, um, as they build their skills, you know, because we've lost our practice with skill building is you've got to raise the bar back up slowly. What, I, what I've been trying to do is raise it up incrementally, but my goal is to have that bar back up to where it was before. I mean, if I, I can talk 
10 years from now and, uh, and say, do I have that bar back up to where the bar was pre-COVID? Will it be 20 years? How long will it take for me to have that bar back up? Where the kids, it can be that high and they can attain success. So right now the bar has to be lowered for all sorts of reasons, um, but it needs there needs to be a, a dedicated, concerted effort to, and, uh, you know, to decide that bar has to be back up to pre-COVID standards for all sorts of reasons. And my final question is, um, do you think you'll get an apology from Minister Education Minister Lecce or your school board or school boards collectively or the Ministry of Education for what they have done to these children? Well, I don't think there'll be an apology, of course. I don't, I don't expect that. I, I would like a thank you in some, in some uh, form, some sort of thank you for, for helping to weather the storm. I'm just one frontline worker. Um, a thank you to everyone for keeping up with the effort and not giving up, not giving up on the children and the system. A, a large thank you would be in order, I think. That would go a long way. Apology won't happen. Thank you. Uh, Mr. McCurdy, we had asked um, witnesses uh, who gave evidence to swear in. So if you don't mind, I'm just going to swear you in. Uh, so sure. Do you swear that the evidence you've given is the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God? Absolutely. Thank you very much, and thank you for coming today. Thank you, Galen, and thank you for, uh, for allowing me to speak. I really, really want to thank the Commission also and the whole inquiry for what they're doing, and they're giving voices to the average citizen. I think that's critical. Um, I think it's imperative that the more people that can talk and we can have a, just a, a large conversation, then I guess the healing can start and we can move forward in a more productive fashion instead of being so divisive and contemptible. So thank you very much for running this inquiry and thank you for allowing me to, to testify. Greatly appreciated. Thank you. So our next witness is uh, Julie Pinder, who will be attending virtually. Hello? Yes, Julie, can you turn your camera on, please? Yeah, I can. <clears throat> there we go. There we go. Hi there. Thank you. We can see you. Um, I'd like to start by asking you to state your full name for the record, spelling your first and last name for the record. Sure, it's Julie Pinder, J-U-L-I-E-P-I-N-D-E-R. And Julie, uh, do you promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? Yes. And now your screen is shaking. Can you set your camera down or your... Um, that's a, a little better, and I, I understand that that's... How's that? That's much better, thank you. Okay, sorry. Now, I understand that you have uh, received two doses of the vaccine. Yes. And um, I wanted to ask you what, uh, what led you to make the decision to become vaccinated? The first vaccine, um, I wanted it because I was scared of COVID and I wanted to do my part. Um, so yeah, I went on ahead and I did the first vaccine. I, I didn't expect it to hit me the way it did really. Um, 
second vaccine, I feel like I was coerced into taking it. Okay. Now, and I'm just going to stop. Your screen is still shaking, so I don't know if your hand is on the table or if there's something else that we can do. You're using a cell phone, I presume. Yeah. Uh, here, let me see what I can do here. I'll try to lean it up. I'm sorry. Okay. Is that better? That is, that is much better. Thank you. So the first okay. shot, um, you basically you were afraid of COVID. And right. can you tell us... Um, who was it that was making you afraid of COVID a bit? I mean, what were you seeing and hearing that gave you that fear? The media. It was all over the place. Um, I, I pretty much believed that, you know, this miracle vaccine was coming and it was going to save us all and we'd be fine. And, you know, I kept hearing that the vaccine was safe and effective. Um, so at that point, I wanted to do my part. I was, I was scared. Of getting COVID. Okay. And then my understanding is you had your first shot on March 1st of 2021? Yes. So you, you were you were fairly early on in the queue. Can you tell us what happened? Uh, so my first shot, um, I came home and I was really extremely tired, but it kind of felt like an anesthetic type of tired. Uh, my eyelids swelled up. I had a rash from my neck down to my feet, pretty much. I was itchy everywhere. Um, and it just, it just knocked me out. Um, I want to say the rash lasted quite a while, and it just kind of slowly went away. But then I started um, uh, noticing that my heart rate was elevated, right? So I used to wear a Fitbit, and I was tracking my steps, and I'd look at my heart rate, and it would be up as high as 140 beats a minute. Um, and then it would drop back down again, and that, that was kind of continuous. So at one point, I just thought my Fitbit was broken, and I stopped wearing it. Um, I also developed weakness behind my ankle bones, and I assumed I needed new work boots. So I did that, and then I started wearing ankle braces at one point. I never connected the heart rate and the ankle weakness with the vaccine. Right. Um, did you seek medical attention for these? Effects? Between the first and the second one, I think I did a few times because I was uh, also experiencing cramping in my lower calves. Um, and, like, nobody, nobody put two and two together at that point. Okay. Now, my understanding is, is because of these complications, you were reluctant to have a second shot. I was, yeah. Um, yeah. But you did attend that at the the pharmacy to get a second shot and I'm curious what why you you were kind of willing to do that again after what you had already experienced well I had a, a brief conversation with uh, my head of health and safety at work and so the place where I worked at is extremely hot and we had to wear face masks all day and I had asked him you know like once we're fully vaccinated are we gonna have to wear these masks and he said, no, no, not once you're vaccinated. And I said to him, well, what about the people who don't want to get vaccinated? Because there were a lot of people there. And he said, well, it's going to be mandated. So, you know, they're not going to have a choice. We wanted to worry about it. Um, and also, I, I was hoping that I could uh, travel. Um, I had booked a trip to the Bahamas. That just obviously didn't happen. So for those reasons... Um, 
at that point, I, I was, I was scared to take it. I'm not going to lie. I was, I, I still, at that point, thought I was doing what was needed of me. You, you mean kind of the societal expectation that you do your part? I saw a shift in the attitudes of Canadians towards people who were unvaccinated. Um, people were turning their backs on the unvaccinated. Uh, I mean, I, I people had really horrible, not-so-nice things to say. Everybody that was hesitant to get a vaccine uh, became treated like an anti-vaxxer. And apparently... Uh, Sorry, I'm trying to... Okay, so... You just... Carry on, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Sorry, you didn't want to be... You just didn't want to be associated with somebody who didn't have a vaccine back then because of some not-so-nice things that were said, um, as far as I'm concerned, by our Prime Minister. Um, but, yeah. Right, and I, and I just want to make sure that I understand, um, you know, basically what was pressuring you because you clearly didn't want to be vaccinated. So basically there was social pressure from Canadians and then there was also... Social... There was social pressure. Um, when I went in and talked to the pharmacist and I told him, you know, how things had went down, he didn't want to give me the second dose. So what he did was he had me uh, tell him what, um, what my uh, reaction was. And so I told him what my reaction was. And at that time, I didn't even tell him about the elevated heart rate or the ankle weakness because I still hadn't put two and two together there. And so he decided that he didn't want to give it to me without um, uh, a doctor's note from an immunologist. So I had taken that letter uh, um, to my local hospital thinking that, you know, maybe there's an immunologist there and they can book me the appointment. We can find out if I'm allergic to anything in it. And instead, I, uh, the nurse um, set up an, a consultation with an ER doctor. Um, so the ER doctor came in, and the first thing he said to me is, I am not giving you an exemption if that's what you're here for. Um, and I said, no, like, so, I, so I just me, want to make sure. Let me just stop you there. So you, you hadn't even explained to him why you were there or, no. you know, any, any reasons, you know, for or against an exemption and the doctor tells you before you, you guys have any conversation that he's That's not right. going to give you an exemption. That's right. Um, yeah. What was kind of the demeanor and attitude of this doctor in, in how you were treated? You know, oddly enough, he was really soft-spoken. Um, and I think he was trying to come off as kind. But to me, it was arrogant. Um, yeah, he... he I mean, that's all I can say about that. He, right away, just, you know, I'm not giving you an exemption. Um, I started to express concern, and he told me I should do my part, be a good citizen. Um, and then he said to me, uh, do you have any uh, children or elderly people in your family? And I said, I have a, a new grandbaby. And he said, you don't want to be responsible for killing your grandbaby. And so... Obviously, at that point, I think that was probably the only thing that could have been said to me to go back and get the second vaccine. 
And when I saw the pharmacist again, it was the same pharmacist. He said to me, you know, are you sure you're okay with this? And I said, no, but I said, the doctor made it sound like I'm going to kill my grandbaby if I don't do it. And so he gave me the second vaccine, but I feel like he was uncomfortable with it and he didn't want to. You know, I kind of wish he had us stuck to his guns, but. And, and so what happened? Um, I was fine for the 15 minutes that I sat with him. And then on the way home, I could taste metal in my mouth. My right arm felt really heavy. Uh, I kind of wondered if maybe I was having a heart attack. So I pulled over, I drank some water and I thought, no, you know what? I'm just, I'm just paranoid. I'm having a panic attack because, you know, I was scared to have the second vaccine. Um, Oh, another thing the doctor had told me was to take a Benadryl and I'd be fine. I forgot about that. Um, I bought Benadryl from the pharmacist. I came home. I started to get in a really, really uh, deep feeling of tiredness again. I took the Benadryl and I went to bed. Um, and I woke up at some point to use the washroom and I knew I needed water. My head was pounding and I had lost the vision in my right eye. But... I was so tired, I didn't even care. I just went back to bed. Um, I want to say the migraine probably lasted another day. And then I woke up at one point, and the headache was going away. My vision was restored. And I thought, thank God that's over and done with. Um, but then I want to say within a week after that, I started dropping things. And it just it just progressed from there. I... My hands, when I started this, looked normal. Um, so they went from normal to skeletal looking without a matter of, I want to say, two or three months. Um, I started dropping things. My sense of perception was off. So I'd go to open a door and I'd completely miss the door. Uh, I continued to try to work. The, uh, the cramps in my uh, calf muscles got really, really bad. Um, it felt like all the muscles over top of my kneecaps had bunched up and in my upper thighs. And I, I remember doing reports at work and I'm holding a pen and I'm trying to like make numbers and it's like my brain just wouldn't connect and I, I just couldn't do it. Um, at that time I, I had a week off work and I thought, okay, well I have a week to get better, you know, and, um, yeah, I just assumed that I would get better, um. Instead, things just progressively got worse. I started to be able to feel where I was losing the muscles in my body. Um, to me, it felt like it went from my ankles up into my knees, my thighs, uh, my trunk, my back, my neck, down my arms and into my hands. And so I went to my local hospital and I spoke with a the doctor there. And he said to me, sometimes people are getting uh, things called Guillain-Bray syndrome and that he would test me for it. He did blood work, he came back, he told me I was fine. Um, I later found out that's not even how you test for it, you have to do a spinal tap. Uh, so I feel like I was deceived just to get out of the hospital. Um, I started having issues now, with swallowing. Can I, can I just stop you, when you're presenting at the hospital, and this is in St. Thomas, am I correct? Yep. Mm -hmm. um, what you're telling them basically what you've just told us, all of these symptoms. Yes. And so they do a test for one thing, it's not that, and so they just send you home without any anything further? 
Yes. I told that doctor that I was losing my muscles. And and that was that was it. He'll do blood work. Um and so yeah, from there, like I said, things were starting to progress and I started having issues swallowing, I started having issues with my thought process. Um I, I knew I was losing my muscles rapidly, and so my husband took me to uh, London Health Science Center um, because we knew there were neurologists there. And I was seen by a neurologist in the ER, and he took a look at my hands and he said, yeah, something's going on here, and he admitted me. Um, the next day, a neuromuscular doctor came in, and she basically argued with me and told me what I was experiencing wasn't happening. Um, I couldn't walk a straight line. I had no balance. They saw that. Um, I'm assuming my blood pressure was low because I, I had a nurse ask me twice if I was dizzy. Um, and she had me do a genetic spit test. And let me see. She also told me that I should protect the muscles in my arms by wearing hockey equipment to bed. And I think uh, at that point, I had asked to see a different doctor who was no longer at that hospital. Um, and I mean, of course, you know, that took a little bit of time, but yeah, I was sent home like that in active muscle atrophy. So um, did they do any follow-up with you? Because they basically told you that you're not experiencing what you're experiencing? No, I was passed off to a different doctor who has done uh, uh, nerve conduction studies and has said, yeah, you know, you're getting weaker. Um, I think, you know, like I've had several blood works done. I've had the uh, genetics testing done. Um, I've had an MRI. I've had CAT scans. And... I feel like they just keep looking for autoimmune diseases that I don't have. Are, are any of them considering that it's a vaccine injury? I did uh, have an appointment with a rheumatologist who, who said, I don't know what the big deal is. This is. She believes it's a vaccine injury. I also saw a spine surgeon who uh, looked at my MRIs and she said there's nothing that she can see that's wrong with my spine except for, you know, the normal aging stuff. And as far as I, I think she had said that she agrees that it was a spine injury. I know she said that she can't think of anything that can make your muscles waste that quickly. Um, no, you said she thinks it's a spine injury. Did you misspeak there? Oh, yes, I misspoke. No, she did not think it was a spine injury. Sorry. Right. Now, you applied for long-term disability. What happened? Yeah. Um, I have, in the past, reacted neurologically to nitrofuritin. Um, and I think once I got better, they just left it there. And so um, I also had issues back then, like not, not nearly this severe. Um, but because of that, um, they say, you know, pre-existing. And... And that's, that's just what insurance companies are like. So even though they have the rheumatology report, um, that's just what they're like. Right. So how has this affected you financially? 
<laughs> my husband also has, um, he was one of the unlucky people who got uh, a specific batch number uh, of AstraZeneca from the Baltimore plant. He has heart damage and now he's working two jobs. And it's impossible to get um, compensation from the vaccination injury support program. From what I understand, I had to, even to get my paperwork, I had to get my MP involved. I kept repeatedly sending, uh, phoning them, sending emails, and even send me the paperwork. And now I'm just hesitant to do it because I feel like they're going to, um, you know, just be like the insurance company. Well, they're going to just try to disprove it. So there was absolutely, and I mean, it takes almost a year in Canada just to get an MRI, right? So how are supposed to people supposed to function like this? Um, I was told I was told I could uh, apply for my CPP disability, but it, you know that takes up to eight months, and I mean they quite often I've heard they deny you the first time. So yeah, there's. There's nothing really set up for people who are injured instantly. What's, um, if, if you could share one thing with your fellow Canadians, what would your message be? Don't get it. Because there's nothing. There's, it would be different, you know, if, if they were doing studies or, or they cared. Um, I was told by my MP, I'm just somebody who happened to fall through the cracks. Um, you know, I mean, I've, I've lost my job. I'm trying to gain back my health. Um, don't do it. Until this government is willing to step up and help people and stop trying to divide us, I would... I'd stay the hell away from it. And I guess my big concern now is you have a whole bunch of people who have been injured by this vaccine were being censored online. If I put anything on, example, my Facebook, I, I get a warning for false and misleading information, even if it's pictures of my own vax injury. Um, it's, you know, we've been, we've been, uh, called liars by people who had it and had no issues with it. Um, the people who, who were anti-vax or against it, telling us that we deserve what we got because we didn't listen to them. We can't get treatment by doctors, and this government isn't supporting us. So. Okay. Um, I'm just going to ask the commissioners if they have any questions of you. Sure. And, and, and the commissioners don't. Okay. Um, Julie, on behalf of the National Citizens Inquiry, I, I truly thank you for sharing your story. It's so important that people like you um, let everyone know what's happened and what your experience is. And, can I just uh, say one more thing quickly? You, you certainly can. So my concern is, if this vaccination can do this to adults, 
I can't even begin to imagine what it can do to a child. You have children who are getting myocarditis, and I don't understand. Um, you know, if given the choice between getting COVID or getting myocarditis, I, I'd take my chance with COVID. It doesn't make sense to give children this vaccine to keep an 80-year-old, say, off a ventilator. It makes absolutely no sense to me. And that's where I better leave it because I get from upset to angry. <laughs> so. Thank you again, okay. Julia, okay. for sharing with us. Great. Thanks. Can we get your name, please? Katerina Duarte Burgett. And uh, we've been swearing in witnesses. So, uh, Ms. Burgett, do you swear that the evidence you're going to give will be the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? So help you, God. I swear, so help me, God. Thank you very much. Um, tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, I am 51. I am a mother of four. Um, three girls and a boy, from ranging in age from 21 to 13. Um, my husband and I own a business in the hospitality industry. I am a retired healthcare professional. I retired to raise my children a long time ago. Um, and during the pandemic, when they were uh, short of PSWs, I uh, because of my background, I, we could quickly train, and I went to work in long-term care. What is it that brings you here today? Um, today, like everyone else, I just feel it's important that our stories get told. And um, I would like people who maybe aren't aware of the consequences, what some of us went through, um, to, to listen. And so um, you mentioned about your children. What, what are the impacts of the last few years? So what has that been on your children? Um, well, all four of them have felt the impacts in very different ways. So early on, um, my husband is a, a retired scientist, and with my background in healthcare too, we questioned everything. Uh, we've always been like that anyway. So um, for the kids, so if I start with my oldest, who happens to be, was in third year of biology, at Queen's University, um, we made her aware that the vaccine had uh, no long-term safety data and that we did not want her to take it. And we showed her the information and we held our breaths and we let her decide for herself what she wanted to do. There was very real threat that she'd be kicked out of school. And she was. We are grateful that she decided she wasn't going to take it, but it was very difficult. What happened to her exactly? So, ironically, she, the January before she was uh, dismissed from university, 
she um, got COVID and uh, from a fully vaxxed friend. Um, and um, we tried to say, well, I mean, what difference does it make? This friend is allowed to return after the Christmas break. She is not. They've both had COVID. She's fully recovered now. Um, anyway, so no, there was none of that. She had to come home. She went through a very difficult time with um, maybe not depression, but feeling very low, uh, being ostracized by friends who, was, who were afraid. Her roommates made her life very difficult. Very, as somebody who'd always been popular um, just couldn't believe that her friends would turn their backs. The, these kids were ruled by fear, total fear. Did your daughter know if she was going to be going back to school? She had no idea if she would ever be able to go back, and she was devastated. What ended up happening? So she came home, she worked, and then um, the mandates were dropped, and she was allowed to return in September of this, pre this previous September. Uh, of course, now she's a semester behind, so she's going to have to go back and finish to get her degree. And your other children, what grades are they in? So my middle two are in, were in high school throughout. Um, and then my youngest is now in grade seven. What did you see in terms of the impacts on them? Ugh. Mentally, huge. So we've heard this morning about all the um, crazy school requirements and the cohorts and the not being able to socialize and the fear that was inst instilled in all of these children. Um, and of course, they felt they had no social lives. It was depressing. They didn't leave their rooms. They had no sports. They had no outlet, no clubs, no nothing. In your school district, was it mostly remote learning over the last three years? Remote learning, yep. And luckily, a very good friend of mine is a retired high school teacher, so she was able to help my teens. Um, and my son, I said, no, you're not logging in. We're going to homeschool for the, for the time that you're meant to be online. Um. From your personal uh, viewpoint, what did you see in terms of the effects of remote learning? Well, I mean, if, if, I, if I focus on my youngest son, um, there's no socialization. There's nobody to play with. Um, he had a diagnosed speech impediment and... Um, Luckily, we were fortunate enough that his speech therapy could continue online. Um, when, I, when he did return to work and uh, they were meant to be masked, I said, no. I mean, show me the data that a masked child with a speech impediment isn't going to be adversely affected, that, and it didn't exist. So we were given an exemption. He was the only one in the school of 250. He's got a spine of steel. Um, who was unmasked. The following year, I was no longer able to just say as a parent, my child will not be masked all day. And that we had to use his um, speech impediment as the reason for them to tick that box. Uh, I'm guessing that was a bit of a struggle to get that exemption. 
I think they knew we weren't going to back down as parents and they were happy to have the out. I felt for other parents who I'd heard from who didn't have that excuse, and I hated to use it as an excuse, no child should be masked six hours a day, never mind an hour a day. Um, yeah, I hated to use his disability as an excuse, but in the end I had to. And tell us a little bit about the impacts of um, mandates and COVID policies generally on you. Well, on me, uh, because I was working in long-term care, um, we were being tested every day, and I uh, came through the pipeline. Even though I had um, I had started, I had I had trained as a PSW through the pandemic because they needed us. Um, it was coming through that you were going to have to be vaxxed. And by then, my husband and I were pretty sure, well, we knew right away that uh, we were not going to do that. And as a re He's a retired scientist. And, and, um, and I've worked in healthcare, and it was just insane to me that a rushed product for which we now know there was ample evidence that didn't even stop transmission and that carries huge risk, could be mandated for anyone. So I said I wasn't going to do that. And I tried to find ways around us that I, I will submit to testing before every shift. I said, you know, there's evidence of of really good prophylaxis coming out of South America. No, it was just, it was a non-starter. There was no way. It's the vaccine or you're out. And the irony is all of my colleagues in long-term care are tested every single shift. So you lost your job? I lost my job. When was that? October of um, 2021. Have you gone back? No. This, our county is a county-owned facility, and our county still has a COVID vaccine mandate. And I understand you're a churchgoer? Yes, I am a singer too, and I sing in a few different choirs, and I sing in our church choir. I also work very part-time in our church office, but um, through COVID, choirs were devastated. <laughs> so they, uh, we weren't allowed to sing as a group, and they asked for volunteers to maintain the music in, uh, ministry. Uh, which I did. Nobody else volunteered. Everyone was too afraid. I said I'd do it. Um, and then when choirs were allowed to resume, there was a catch, and you had to be vaxxed. So the people I had stood beside for 10 years, twice a week, every week, um, said nothing. They watched me walk away. So you couldn't sing either? Nope. Today? 
Today it's okay, I can sing, but only in selective choirs, because some choirs require more protection, I guess. And so it's okay to sing in my church choir every Sunday, just like it is in, I assume, every church in the diocese. However, for some years, I had sung in a diocesan choir, which brought together people from all over, um, and we did sort of the big events. Um, and in that particular choir, you must be vaxxed. You mentioned about a business that you and your husband own? Yep, we own a business and uh, we own a brewery. And um, so early on, my husband is a retired scientist. Early on, um, he actually happens to be a yeast specialist and um, RTQPCR specialist. He's performed PCR tests hundreds of thousands of times in his postdoctoral research. Um, but in the beginning of the pandemic, we thought, well, we, you know, we have to do our bit. We're going to help. We have to do our bit. And he ended up making hand sanitizer when there was a huge shortage. We donated about $30,000 worth of materials, and he made the hand sanitizer and donated it all to local. Um, there was... Um, a charity set up that was trying to get PPE and supplies to uh, local hospitals, doctor's offices, and businesses. So this was in the early days of the pandemic? Yes, yes. And uh, was your business, did that remain open? Well, because alcohol was essential, um, we were allowed to keep the bottle shop open so people could come in and they could buy, uh, but we couldn't operate, um, you know, the bar. You, you couldn't come in and sit and have a beer. You could come buy it and take it home. Um, but so, I mean, and the other thing is the pubs and restaurants are closed, so we had nobody to sell to. So our business suffered like everybody else pretty much. And from a social perspective in your community, how would you say you've been in, you and your family had been impacted? We've lost a lot of friends, but we've made so many more friends. We discovered um, at our lowest, in like many people, feeling so low, just like a cloud over your head constantly. Um, we discovered an underground of people who were suffering in all sorts of ways. And we started to meet. I mean, this was during lockdown, too. It was all secret. It's just crazy to think about it now. But I, I found a lifeline. And I still remember showing up to that first meeting, and I, I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe I wasn't alone. And we all told our stories. And we all had to park like far away so that neighbors wouldn't report you. And those people are some of my best friends now. Yeah, it's a really dark time, really dark time. Do you feel like you're coming out of it now? 
yes, yes, things are somewhat back to normal. But like many people, when I struggle with the idea of forgiveness, because forgiveness does not happen in a vacuum. It requires an apology. It requires a sense of what was done wrong, an acknowledgement of what was done, and reparations, whatever they may be, and a system put in place so that it won't happen again. We talked in the education sector earlier with Mr. McCurdy about acknowledgments by officials and um, doesn't seem like that's occurred. What, what have you seen, if anything? Nothing, nothing. No one's apologized, no one. Not on a personal level. Actually, that's not true. I've had one or two people on a personal level apologize. And I am so ready to forgive on any other level, though. No one's apologized, no one. It needs to start from the top down, from the politicians. Public health needs to be gutted, reprehensible. And they need to apologize, they need to pay for what they've done. Um, but I'll take an apology any day. I wonder if any of the commissioners have any questions. Thank you very much for Thank coming. You. Thank, Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks. So our next witness is uh, Colleen Brands. Colleen, oh, oh no, you... they're really late. Just wait. Are we doing Eric? Okay, so Colleen was here earlier, so Shen, do you have a few, or uh, I guess we're doing Eric. Yes, uh, morning, Dr. Payne. Morning, can you hear me? Yes, we can, and we're seeing some of your slides coming up. That's perfect. Before we get to that, um, can I uh, swear you in, um, which we've been doing with the various witnesses. So uh, do you swear that the evidence you give will be the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God? I do. Thank you. Um, and you're joining us from Alberta, I believe, right? That's correct. I'm in Calgary. 
and uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I've got a, a summary of my um, academic background up here on the right. Um, I am a child neurologist, uh, Canadian trained, um, worked uh, in the States as well at Mayo Clinic for six years before being recruited back to the Children's Hospital uh, to help build a neuroinflammatory uh, program, um, as well as my epilepsy surgery and ICU-EG uh, experience. We returned, we being my family, I have three small children as well, eight, six, and four, uh, moved back to Calgary from Rochester, Minnesota, a month before the pandemic started. Uh, it says there that you were a pediatric neurologist at the Mayo Clinic for six years before you came back? That's correct. What did that involve? Yeah, that, that was a, an outstanding experience. There's a, a, not a better healthcare delivery model system in the world, in my opinion, than Mayo Clinic. Um, I had the, uh, the ability to just focus almost entirely on epilepsy, um, both adult and pediatric. And I was very involved in helping to develop and run their ICU EG monitoring program. So we hooked patients up who are critically ill in the ICU to EG to look for seizures and prognosticate outcomes. Um, and so, you know, my youngest two are actually born in the States. They're American. Um, we had a really, really good experience um, and, and really only decided to move home to Canada when, um, when University of Calgary and Alberta Children's Hospital um, came soliciting once again, um, you know, about six months or a year before I came to sort of say that they had a, an open job coming up and um, they wanted to write that job uh, based on my credentials, which they did. And uh, as a result of, you know, a three-year startup package that was very generous um, with uh, with funding as well as, you know, protected research time, which was going to be 50% of my time, um, you know, we made the decision to move the family at that, at that moment. And that was in the uh, spring of 2020? That was in February 2020. February. Okay. All right. So what happened next from your perspective? Well, I mean, with respect to the COVID stuff, um, I guess, you know, I, I have a slide here on ethics, um, but um, really where I got involved with this was a letter that I wrote on September 15th, 2021 uh, to the college, to the College of Physicians and Surgeons in Alberta, uh, because they were openly contemplating whether or not to tie uh, our medical licenses in the province uh, to um, the COVID vaccination. Um, and at that same time, Alberta Health Services, who was my employer, um, for one of them anyways, University of Calgary as well, uh, had made the decision late August that they were going to implement a COVID-19 vaccine policy. And um, that if you uh, were not uh, going to capitulate, um, that you were going to get locked out and, and lose your job. So I wrote a letter, um, you know, 18 pages with about 80 references, every bullet point backed by a fact, a data point. Um, and, uh, that letter ended up, um, going viral, I guess I put a copy of it, as you can see up here on the JCCF website, uh, because, uh, people were, were manipulating versions of it when it first got out. Um, Sorry, so I, I housed JCCF? it in one spot. Apologies. JCCF is the justice center for oh. constitutional freedoms. Right. So they were one of the only lawyers or law firms that were willing to, to talk to someone like myself, uh, who was, you know, looking to fight back against these, what I felt to be very unconstitutional mandates. Uh, but more than that, the science 
at at the time in the fall was incontrovertible. I mean, we knew that these things didn't stop transmission. Um, we had all these long-term concerns. They 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 failed to to show us the biodistribution data about where this thing goes when it travels in the body. There are a lot of concerns, and we also knew who was at risk. And you know, as somebody who is a healthy forty-year-old, uh, uh, I, I was not in that high-risk category. So um, we, we wrote this letter, and the these are the main bullet points that I argued in that letter. And then a few weeks later, I, I got onto a, a podcast, a Sean Newman podcast, um, mainly because one, this version of the letter was never meant to be distributed. I was going to, this was lit written specifically to 15, you know, physicians on the council of the college. Um, and I felt that there was maybe, you know, it was a little bit too complicated for, for, for layman interpretation. So I got on the podcast to explain it. And I also wanted to explain to my colleagues where my head was at, <laughs> why uh, all of a sudden someone who, who they had gone to know for a very long time because I trained here, right, for eight years. They knew they were getting somebody who cared a lot about their patients and was going to work hard. Uh, so I tried to explain to them where I was coming from. Uh, but very quickly after this, um, uh, things things went sideways. Um, I, you know, I've still not received uh, a response from the college. So that letter that I wrote to college has, has never received a response. I sent it to the CEO of Alberta Health Services at the time, Dr. Verna Yu. Um, she forwarded it to Dr. Mark Joff. Joff is, Dr. Joff is now the Chief Medical Officer of Health, um, appointed by Dr. Sorry, appointed by Premier Smith. And he wrote back to me, thanking me for my letter uh, and concerns that they were going to continue to go with the international community and, and suggested that if I had concerns about the mRNA vaccines that I consider taking one of the DNA vector vaccines like the AstraZeneca. Uh, and of course, the AstraZeneca got removed from the shelves a few months later because of an increased incidence of clots and bleeding. Um, but after my letter uh, sort of went around, there was another pediatrician at the Children's who wrote a letter as well. Um, and so uh, this article in the Calgary Herald um, was sort of slandering what we had talked about, misrepresenting, of course, what we talked about. Um, and, and one of their, their go-to individuals um, for misinformation here in Canada is an individual by the name of Timothy Caulfield, who um, just won the Governor General's Award for uh, fighting COVID misinformation. As a matter of fact, he's also a member of the Pierre Elliott Trudeau Foundation. And so he made this comment that, you know, calling into question the safety and efficacy of the vaccine was like denying the pull of gravity. Uh, but since that time, you know, experts such as uh, Byron Bridal, Dr. Byron Bridal, as well as Dr. Stephen Pellick, um, have tried to sit down and just have a discussion about the science. Um, and, and this article, these articles here speak to Dr. Uh, to, to, to those efforts to try to have a debate and discussion. Uh, but Mr. Caulfield, who is, um, uh, you know, apparently an expert on COVID misinformation, uh, refuses to sit down, you know, even two or three years out um, on this, which I think tells tells us quite quite a bit. And uh, as a result, you know, moving forward, uh, AHS, you know, moved to take immediate action. So these are the actual, you know, cups cut, cut that was from the letters. They took immediate action on uh, December 13th at 12 o'clock. They let us know that that deadline got pushed back a few times. But I think at 11 p.m. that night, we got the email that we were officially being locked out the next the next morning. Uh, and then um, the very next morning, at ten, uh, December 14th at 8 a.m., um, the college sent in two investigators to go through my records in front of my colleagues. Um, looking for vaccine exemption letters. They had, uh, I guess, received a complaint or had concern that I might be writing vaccine exemption letters. Um, so uh, as you can see here, they went through uh, letters from September on. They went through 82 patient records. They found a handful of vaccine exemption letters that I had written for select patients. Uh, and they ended up concluding that um, 
that these were well documented and valid and that there was, as they say, uh, insufficient evidence found to suggest that I wasn't compliant. Uh, and at the time, what, you know, the college was telling physicians, I've got this on video, uh, you know, that if, if you write a vaccine exemption, the only exemption that you can write is if somebody has an, uh, an allergic reaction or myocarditis after the first. There was no exemptions before the first. However, if you went to their website, there were exceptional circumstances. You had to document them properly. So that's what I did. Uh, but that's, uh, you know, that's why everybody had such hard times getting these letters. And, and the reality was, even once the letters were written, um, I had colleagues here who had two exemption letters from physicians, uh, and they were still fired from AHS. Um, on January 6th, um, the University of Calgary uh, sent me a letter stating that um, they were not going to renew my contract. I had a signed three-year letter of offer, including three years of startup funding um, for the 50%, 45% protected research time. And they specifically said in the letter, and you can see that in quotes, that uh, uh, this might remove from my education activities by the coming School of Medicine due to non-compliance with the university's Calgary vaccination directive. Um, and, you know, so that was January 6th. And then February 28th, they dropped the policy. So I was I was officially non-compliant with the University of Calgary's uh, policy for two months. Uh, and then Alberta Health Services dropped the mandate in July. But I was allowed back to the hospital, you know, six weeks after they locked me out. Um, because at that point, they finally decided that they were going to allow um, testing. And so before I went to the hospital every day, uh, I had to get a, had to go to the pharmacy, pay for a test so I could go into work. Uh, fortunately, I, I was right guessing that was going to be very temporary. Uh, and, and that lasted just a few months and I was back without, without testing. What's gone on since that time was, uh, as a result of removing my, you know, quite lucrative fee for service, sorry, my, uh, salary contract, they've allowed me to continue, uh, on a fee for service basis in the hospital while continuing to diminish my clinical time. I've started uh, uh, to see patients in the community, um, but just before Christmas, I uh, was made aware that they were advertising for the job that they had removed from me. Um, and so I decided to put my name back in the application. And I just found out a couple of weeks ago that they're not, they're not going to consider my application to move forward with that application. They're going to interview four other individuals, all excellent. I know three of the four of them, you know, three of them are still in fellowship training. So they don't, they're not even consultants. Um, and the other one is, is a general neurologist. So, you know, not the, still the same skill level, um, or research background, um, or, uh, you know, or, or experience. And I still have two complaints against being outstanding with the college, uh, with respect to misinformation. One is related to the original letter itself. Uh, the one that I wrote to the the council, <laughs> I've never received a response for. Uh, they have informed me uh, a year and a half out that uh, they have hired an expert third opinion. So they can't find, uh, I guess, anything scientifically wrong. So they've asked of her a third uh, uh, opinion. And then this, uh, from what I understand um, from another other doctors in Alberta who have gone through this with the college already, first of all, uh, getting an outside contractor to, to look into this is very abnormal for them. Um, but there's a company that they've hired for a couple of physicians, and it's a it's a group of XRCMP officers from who are now investigating whether or not I spread scientific misinformation. And I wrote a letter to my college seeking discussion and debate about something I was very concerned about safety-wise. Uh, the other complaint came from a colleague myself, uh, a colleague at my hospital who I've known for a very long time, someone um, who um, showed the uh, intestinal fortitude and, and the character of courage to uh, just write the complaint behind my back and never actually... <laughs> approach me with with any of these concerns i just all of a sudden have a complaint from them um so that one's still open um for for misinformation as well 
Um, so if I can just stop you there and yeah, please. summarize where we're at. You were effectively recruited by the Alberta health official officials um, because of your expertise, recruited away from a job you loved at the Mayo Clinic, and then were promptly let go because for a period of six to eight weeks, you were not in compliance with the vaccine mandate. Is that, is that it? That is correct. Okay. Can, you can continue. So I, I thought at this point, I, I, when I, uh, I would sort of focus on the four main points of my letter, um, just showing just, you know, very briefly, and I, I got a lot of slides, but I'm going to go through them not to explain everything, but people can take screenshots and it's going to be there for posterity. But, you know, the first point was that September 1st, so 15 days before my letter, the CDC decided to change the definition of a vaccine because these genetic jabs were not vaccines. And so they had to change the definition. They weren't preventing disease. They weren't providing immunity. So they changed it to providing some temporary protection. We also knew at that time, if you looked at, this is CDC data here, I mean, you know, age was an incredible predictor of who was going to get injured. So, you know, here, here I am with in the 20 to 49 year old group, and, and I've got a 99.98% chance of survival. We knew this within three months before it even sort of arrived on our shores uh, officially. And, um, you know, if you look at the Canadian data, this is on the Canadian public available data. You can see down here, this is age and this is the number of cases of COVID over time. Uh, sorry, deaths with or from COVID. So keep in mind that at least 50% of these are going to be uh, with and not, they didn't actually die from COVID. This has been acknowledged by multiple public health officials many times. But as of May 13th, 2022, we had 24,000, um, sorry, there were a total of 40,000 deaths in Canada in three years. And half of those are, are with and not from. So we've had 20,000 deaths in Canada in three years from COVID. And 97.1% of those have occurred in those over 50. If you look at the breakdown in Alberta, just focus here on, on the summary here. Albertans over 50-year-old have compromised 70% of all COVID-related hospitalizations, 70% of all COVID-related ICU admissions, and 96% of all COVID-related deaths. If you look at it divided by pediatric data, uh, data we fortunately, this thing has not been uh, affecting kids. Uh, we didn't have any deaths in Alberta until the fall of 2021. So this was a full year and a bit after the pandemic, just as the vaccines were starting to roll out. We have five cases of death. I know three of them died for sure with and not from COVID. Uh, I don't know all five of them, but this is the total number. This is the number of kids that got hospitalized out of all of this, uh, total in the ICU and, and five deaths. Uh, and, and one of those, the very first deaths, as a matter of fact, um, our, our former chief medical officer of health, Dr. Dina Hinshaw, got on and held a press conference to, to indicate to families that we had just lost the first child from COVID um, and then promptly sort of encouraging families. That was right at the time they were about to push the vaccines in the 5 to 11-year-olds um, and then had to retract because a family member pointed out that the, the uh, teenage boy had been suffering from uh, stage 4 brain cancer and had died you know, with and not from COVID. So she apologized and retracted that. And this is not surprising. So we know this is October 26, 2021, right at the time that my letter went out. This was Pfizer's own modeling data that they submitted to the FDA. And they predicted that if you vaccinate 1 million children, so two shots fully vaccinated, you're going to save maybe one life. Uh, but you're going to cause somewhere between 34 and 17 cases of excess myocarditis in the ICU. And we know that, you know, probably 15 to 20, maybe up to 50%, depending on the study, 
of people who have ICU myocarditis die within five years. So based on this, their own modeling, before this thing rolled out in kids, before the Canadian government approved this, this table showed you that they were going to kill more children because of ICU myocarditis than save from the vaccine. And this doesn't include any of the other side effects. We were told, as you guys uh, all remember, We, we can't hear. Uh, oh, you guys can't hear that. We can't can you? hear that um, clip from uh, Ms. Wolensky. Okay. So um, that's. Uh, so the, she. The, in that the, the gist there, of it is that, that we were told that the vaccine would prevent you from getting COVID. Yes? That's right. Yeah, that's right. I'll have to figure this out because I've got other, other short videos too. But she was telling us that you're not going to get it. You're gonna, if you get it, you're not going to spread it to other people. Um, and then we had, and hopefully, um, let's see if you guys are, actually, if I just do um, this, you guys may be able to hear this now. No, that's not going to work. Um, so this was Fauci saying the same thing. And these are all the people that said that. But the, the key to um, what was taking place here was that in the official trials that were done and they came back and telling us that this was, you know, 95 percent um, effective or um, or 100 percent effective in the, in the teenagers. Uh, what they were providing was the uh, the relative risk and they were not providing us with the absolute risk. And the absolute risk from these trials actually showed that. You know, if you had a 100% chance of getting COVID, these things reduced it by 1%. So the number needed to vaccinate based on these numbers showed that you needed to vaccinate like 125 people or 200 people just to save one, one case, prevent one case. So there was no chance that vaccinating everybody was ever going to solve this endemic virus. Uh, and this is a, a quote from a, a document from the FDA itself saying that it is actually, you know, unprofessional to just provide the relative risk and not provide the absolute risk. Um, this is a, a document that was pushed around in Canada, including the children's hospital that I work at, uh, back in June in 2021, uh, stating here, you know, that the vaccine was 100% safe and effective based on the relative risk in those, uh, in those children. But they also suggested that we had, you know, no concerns for long-term risks. Uh, and I was able to, uh, confirm via email with the pediatric infectious disease doctor who was helping push these things around. That at the time that they were sending this and sending this to families, uh, that they only had eight weeks uh, long-term data in adults. They didn't have, they didn't even have eight weeks in kids at that point. Uh, the, the major integrity issues with respect to the Pfizer original trials as well. There's a whistleblower um, who is currently suing them, uh, and uh, it's incredible what what they were getting away with. Um, hopefully, you guys were able to hear. You guys can't hear that, can you? No, we can't. Okay, so th that's uh, Bill um, telling us that that these vaccines are not good at infection blocking and preventing the disease. Uh, so he, uh, uh, right after making this statement, sold off a whole bunch of his Moderna shares with uh, a pretty good upside to them. Um, you know, here is the Alberta public health data, uh, and this is the kind of figure that I have in some of my uh, expert opinions that are before the court um, with respect to COVID. But this is the Alberta over, data over time, COVID cases, 
two doses is in the green, three doses is in the red, one dose blue. And so what you can see, you know, May 2021, September 21, here we are into Omicron, right during the truckers uh, in Ottawa in January uh, of 2022. Uh, and if you had had two doses, you were twice as likely to get Omicron. And that is relative to 100,000. 100, so this is not the absolute numbers. This is this is relative numbers. Um, this continued, and, and you can see here as of March 13th, the three doses were most likely to be getting COVID uh, by the Alberta data. And that, it was at this time that Alberta took this number off the website. Now, certainly there is more uptake on the third shot among elderly people. So that for sure is a, you know, a part, part of, of, of this, but it does not account for all of it. Here's the Ontario data, same thing, fully vaccinated, uh, absolute risk at right around the January 22, more likely to get COVID if you had two shots. Relative to vaccine status per 100,000, the double vax were more likely to get Omicron last Christmas. This is the Alberta, this is for U.S. data, uh, looking specifically against uh, Omicron coming out this fall. Zero percent effectiveness is here. And you can see that over time, across all age groups, this became negative effectiveness over time. This was a prospective study just done at the Cleveland Clinic in the fall where they looked at the bivalent effectiveness in 50,000 of their own healthcare workers. Note that they didn't even force their healthcare workers to all take the shot because they had some people with zero doses to, to study. Um, but what this showed very effectively was a dose response curve. The most likely person to get COVID Omicron this last fall was four doses, uh, then three doses, then two doses, then one dose, then zero dose. Um, this this video, uh, I think many people have, have seen this one as well, um, but a, a, an EU uh, parliament uh, um, uh asking a Pfizer executive if, um, you know, they had had any evidence that the vaccine stopped transmission before they rolled this out, which I think most people thought that, of course, they have evidence that this had. She chuckles and said, no, we didn't have any evidence to show that this stopped transmission. We had to move at the speed of silence, science, whatever that is. So right around that time, you know, so then, you know, the, the, the naysayers here will say, well, it still does something against serious illness and disease. But in March 2022, um, this was the data available publicly in the UK and, and nine out of 10 COVID deaths were in the fully vaccinated. So UK and, and Israel were three to four months ahead of us on this. So you could just look to see what was going on there to predict what was coming in Canada, which is why when I wrote my letter in the fall, uh, I, I already had Israeli data that showed that two doses compromised 60% of the ICU emissions in September. So there was no way even against serious illness and death that this was going to do what they were saying it was going to do. Here's BC data showing the same thing. You know, 93% of the COVID-related deaths in March were, were the vaccinated. Um, 85%, 82% of hospitalizations. Um, and this is despite the fact that only 50% of people in BC had taken three shots. So proportionally speaking, the triple vax are more likely to die from COVID. That's in BC. This is the Alberta data, same thing. Three doses, 50% likely, uh, this is hospitalizations. So you can see 81% of the hospitalizations were in, the, were in the vaccinated. And then in deaths, this is July 4th, 2022. Um, we had 73% of the deaths in Alberta occurred in those who were with two or more shots. And this data uh, is important, you know, especially in the context that we only had 39% uptake on three shots. So this is right here at the Omicron uh, when it came out at Christmas time in 2022. And right when everybody who had taken two and three shots got COVID anyways, uh, a lot of them decided that they weren't going to take three shots. So we haven't gone past 40% uptake. It's plateaued since January of 2022. And in response to those numbers, um, uh, AHS has taken, uh, the Alberta government has taken 
the uh, cases by vaccine outcome, death, hospitalization, and, and cases itself, you can no longer get that anywhere in Canada, uh, basically. Uh, this is Paul Offit, uh, and, and, and he's a member of the FDA that consistently, he's a pediatric infectious disease, I'll consistently voted yes for the vaccines. And he's saying that he would have voted hell no if he could have said hell no instead of just no to the Omicron boosters because of the complete lack of data associated with that. Uh, um, and then, you know, what we've seen here in the last, you know, six months is that because of the efficacy data uh, and lack thereof, multiple jurisdictions are taking this from their shelves. So, you know, France just um, removed this. Denmark um, uh, stopped recommending these back in March, <laughs> uh, a long, long time ago, as uh, sorry, September 2022. Um, England, uh, here's Florida, uh, removing these from those uh, under the age of 40. Um, here is the Danish health minister saying it was a mistake to recommend COVID-19 vaccines for children. Here is a health official from Quebec recently stating that they're not going to recommend boosters only for the vulnerable, specifically drawing attention to the fact that natural acquired immunity with respect to COVID actually exists. And those who have had it, given that about 95% probably of us, based on serology studies, have had it, there's no reason to boost everybody with it. Uh, and then just this week, the World Health Organization, <laughs> of all people, is now no longer recommending this for for uh, for those who are not not at risk. Um, you know this this clip. Uh, if you haven't seen it, it's really too bad the voicing, but uh, is not working here. But this is Anthony Fauci uh, uh, years and years ago being asked specifically on camera uh, about a woman who just got influenza, just got the flu, and whether or not the person who just got the flu should also get vaccinated against the flu. And he says, if she has really had the flu, then she does not need to be vaccinated. The best vaccine is in fact being infected with the virus. So that was pre-COVID. That was the, the brain on <laughs> pre-COVID. And then all of a sudden, um, right as these vaccines were coming in, we know by a serology uh, by the summer 2022, that probably, sorry, summer 2021, that probably 50% of the population had, had been exposed to COVID. So the idea that you would expose 50% of your population to an experimental genetic jab if they had protection from already getting it didn't make any sense. So they had to tarnish that long-held medical established fact that, yeah, 2,000, 4,000, 6,000 years of, of, of human existence, um, and, and we're here because of our immune systems. Dr. Paul uh, Alexander uh, he put together 160 research studies over the last few years showing a superiority of, of natural acquired immunity post-COVID infection to the vaccine. Uh, and here is a recent paper just came out uh, earlier this uh, in February, and I'm not going to go through, but basically it was a meta-analysis of all the best data. And, and as a result, showing for sure that there is better robust um, protection, even if you get reinfected, uh, like with Omicron, if you were got, say, you know, the original, uh, you know, the original virus or alpha or something like that, you are protected against serious illness uh, still with these numbers. And, and that led to actually the mainstream picking this up recently. So, you know, what was actually interesting about this study was actually was funded by the Gates Foundation. So they have no, they really have to acknowledge this now for that to come out that way. But uh, nonetheless, you know, here is three years late, the Lancet recognizes natural immunity. And this is one of the points that I'm apparently spreading misinformation for when I wrote that letter in September. Uh, here's the New York Post stating the same thing. This, uh, these are two short videos talking about vaccine-induced enhancement, the idea that being vaccinated against certain viruses uh, with subsequent exposure to that virus, you can get increased infection or you can get enhanced infection as a result of that. And it's well known. So I had written about this because we had, you know, about a dozen papers where 
where animal models had gotten respiratory viruses and subsequent to getting the vaccine, subsequent exposures, the animals all died due to antibody-dependent enhancement. And this is Dr. Fauci explaining exactly that, that there is, you know, this issue with vaccine-induced enhancement. The FDA knew that it was a risk with the COVID viruses, the COVID vaccines rather. And so they they were watching for it apparently, but they haven't really been documenting any of this. And we can get this through antibody-dependent enhancement, immune imprinting, uh, where you sort of, you know, you, 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 um, your, your immune system gets uh, gets biased towards the first uh, version of what it sees, and then it can get exhausted by all these subsequent boosters. And Peter Hotez has been one of the most vocal pro-COVID vaccine people uh, on CNN everywhere. Uh, but this is a testimony from him. This is really remarkable testimony, as a matter of fact, back in March 2020. Um, and, and he himself had done vaccine research with the coronavirus and had found that vaccine-induced enhancement was an issue. Uh, and he specifically talks about an RSV vaccine where children died as a result of vaccine-induced enhancement. Um, and so it is an absolute concern. It was a concern. Everybody knew that it was a concern. And if... If you, uh, you know, you look across here now, we've got clear evidence in the peer reviewed literature that that has taken a place. The antibody dependent enhancement has happened with Omicron, that the antibodies that are being generated are not neutralizing and meaning not canceling the virus itself. Um, we knew this, uh, at the time I wrote my letter. This is the paper with respect to the Delta variant that was at present in the fall 2021. Uh, again, showing that there is infection enhancing antibodies that's been detected. Um, and you know, this is, one of the things that I you know this was quoted as well, but look at the date that this was submitted, November 2019. Um, so pre uh, uh, this rolling into our shores, uh, as far as uh, we've been led to believe, although, you know, now we've, it's been even recognized by the former CDC uh, director and, and in peer reviewed literature that the virus was in circulation in the fall for sure in, in, in Europe. Uh, but anyways, here is, and this is the woman here, Zheng Li Shi, who's colloquially known as the bat lady. But uh, in their lab, they actually, uh, they induced enhancement of coronaviruses. <laughs> so before this thing got out, infected everybody, there were people playing with antibody-dependent enhancement of the coronavirus itself. And we know, you know, now it's widely acknowledged, uh, you know, what was previously conspiracy theory with respect to this thing having been generated in the lab. Now I think everybody is, you know, acknowledged that it is, uh, it was definitely created. Um, you know, the COVID genetic jobs and distribution by distribution, it's a huge issue because there isn't a single drug that we get that I can't look up what happens to it in your body, how long it takes for that thing to get metabolized, what get, what, where it gets metabolized. Uh, and, and for whatever reason, that was not present with these vaccines, these genetic jabs. And we knew that they were being housed in a fat ball, the mRNA ones were. And so, you know, because of that, you, I, my thought was that this could get everywhere. We were specifically told that this produces a spike protein, but that that spike protein gets tether, tethered to a cell membrane and as a result can't circulate in the body and then gets, you know, recognized, destroyed. You know, you, you build up an immune response and then it's gone. Now the Canadian government is recognizing on their website, that was a conspiracy to suggest it could circulate, you know, in the fall when I wrote this. But now the Canadian website is now acknowledging that this can, can, can exist for days to weeks. It can actually exist for many, many months. There's evidence that it can even exist beyond a year. Um, and, you know, this point about this does not get into the cell nucleus and whatever, um, you know, that may not be totally true. You know, we've got this paper uh, by Alden et al. In, in a cell model of uh, HUH7, which is a cancer, um, a liver cancer cell model, showing that it activated a reverse transcriptase, meaning the mRNA became DNA, and then they found the spike protein inside the cell nucleus. So, you know, we need to know more about this, but this idea that this doesn't get in and it's been debunked, that's also nonsense. 
Um, this was the only data that I had in September that was, you know, really, uh, this was obtained through access to information and this was in rats. And we knew, uh, that very quickly, 0.25 hours, one hour, 48 hours that this circulated everywhere. Um, it was in, uh, brain, eyes, heart, kidneys, reproductive organs. So that was back, uh, Japanese Pfizer data. Uh, and we've also got the data, um, that was submitted to Australian authorities from Pfizer. Um, showing, uh, you know, once again, this also gets into the bone marrow. I mean, it goes all over the place, uh, and the uptake in the reproductive organs, uh, as well as the brain. Um, and, you know, it's, it's very, very important. Now, it's also been found in the breast milk. So, you know, whether that's meaningful or not, um, they, you know, they, they fact check this and denigrate it, but the reality is they're finding it in people's uh, breast milk. So, uh, to suggest that this thing doesn't travel, uh, is, is, would be misinformation itself right now. Another study showing that it circulates for at least 15 days. Uh, here's a here's an adult uh, who uh, received uh, who got the vaccine uh, and then developed an encephalitis and status epilepticus, and they found the spike protein, not the virus and envelope protein, but just the spike protein in the cerebral spinal fluid. So it has the ability to get into the spinal fluid, uh, and it can get in and affect myocarditis. So you know here are here it is where you know the patients who have clinically evident myocarditis are more likely to have detected spike protein in their body. Um, here's an autopsy series where, you know, patients who were, had undiagnosed myocarditis and all these patients dying in their sleep. Um, it's apparently rude to ask if they were vaccinated. Uh, having said that, we all know that myocarditis, uh, and one of the presenting, uh, symptoms for myocarditis can be death. Um, this has been, been identified on pathology. They found spike protein in the heart. And, you know, here's just the two studies I mentioned, one about the breast milk, but two, we also know that it can impair temporarily semen concentration and motile comment. And they say temporarily because they only look for a couple of months and they stop looking. So we don't know how long that actually affects things. Uh, and just sort of wrapping up here, but getting into the, the severe side effects and death, um, you know, this was a, a tour by Dr. Hoff, Dr. Malthouse. Um, uh, these are all people who were injured by the vaccine uh, who showed up to this tour. So these are not rare. The Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System, which is a uh, self-reporting system by physicians and patients in the U.S. and internationally, uh, it found uh, it's now got over uh, 2.5 million adverse events reported with respect to these vaccines, including 44,000 deaths. Uh, and this is likely an underrepresentation of at least a factor of 10 to 40. Um, here is all vaccine adverse event reporting system uh, over decades. So um, here is all vaccines all put together. And this is the adverse events. And then here's the COVID vaccine. So the COVID vaccine in the first 18 months uh, accumulated more vaccine adverse events in the reporting system than all vaccines put together in 40 years. Uh, and juxtapose that with, you know, previously these things being removed from the market after just, you know, 15 cases of, of a bowel obstruction. Um, the European Union has got a database as well. They've they've documented 46,000 uh, associated deaths um, and 4.6 million injuries. Uh, the World Health Organization has got a database as well. This also shows the same thing. So they've got, uh, as of November 12, 2021, there were 2.5 million adverse events in the World Health Organization's VigiAccess database compared to under a million adverse events for all vaccines put together in 40 years. This is an interesting uh, uh, safety database that's housed by the CDC. And for whatever reason, the CDC went to court to try to prevent its release. It's supposed to be publicly available data. They prospectively uh, enroll patients getting vaccinated, and they're supposed to report what their symptoms are on a prospective basis over the next few days. And this system showed that, you know, 7.7% of everybody who took a shot, this is everybody, this is not just, you know, self-selection bias. Everybody who took a shot, regardless of symptoms, had to add this thing in. 
and almost 10% had to go get medical attention and, and one out of four were missing work or school. And, and as I say, the CDC tried to hide this data. The CD, the FDA tried to hide Pfizer's data. This is three month data that we have now by access to information. In the first three months of the vaccine rollout, this is before it came to Canada, um, they had already documented 1,223 associated deaths. Um, and the six-month Pfizer data, which if you haven't looked at the Canadian COVID Care Alliance's video, More Harm Than Good, I highly recommend it because it's extremely well done. But this is this is probably our best, sorry about my dog, but our best data um, at six months. It's actually the trial data. So they're actively followed to find the side effects. Uh, and they tried to hide this for six months. And when we we got access to it, we found that injuries, short-term were injury are higher. And there are actually six more deaths in the vaccine arm at six months than there were in the placebo arm. Um, and so there is absolutely never been any, any peer reviewed, you know, any, any quality, uh, uh, phase three trial data showing that these things prevent serious illness and death. Even the original phase three trials were just looking at the presence of illness. Sorry, Dr. Payne. I just, we're yep. running out of time. I'm wondering if I sure. can just stop you and turn things over to the commissioners and see if they have any questions, if you don't mind. No problem. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Payne, for your very nice overview of the COVID uh, vaccine science over the past three years. Uh, I'll have two questions. First question is, uh, knowing that the vaccine is not sterilizing the uh, propagation of the virus, and also knowing that uh, coronavirus mutate, is it your expert opinion that the mass vaccination was contributing to the extension of the wave of new variant as we saw over over the years also given the fact that when you look at countries where vaccination rate is fairly low it seems that the covid at subs the pandemic at subset much much earlier than in other countries yeah, thanks for the question. There's no doubt in my mind that that's the case. And uh, it's not just my expert opinion on this. Uh, I was able to cite a paper from, you know, uh, uh, immunology and virology experts in the New England Journal of Medicine back in the fall of 2021, where in that, are, uh, you know, that well-respected journal, they were warning about act aggressively vaccinating in the middle of a pandemic using a non-sterilizing vaccine, that you were going to put evolutionary pressure on the virus to mutate uh, into something that we weren't going to be able to deal with. Um, and so this was warned um, by some very smart people like a year and two prior, and the evidence as it came out showed this. And the antibody-dependent enhancement papers I showed you show specifically that there are facilitating or enhancing antibodies that are circulating with respect to the Delta and Omicron variants. So I don't think there's any doubt that that's happened. My other question is relating to a sort of confirmation in real world that the vaccine does or does not prevent hospitalization or death, uh, it seems that it's very challenging to get the data in any jurisdiction about the actual vaccine status of people that were hospitalized for COVID or died from COVID. Do you have any sort of uh, hope that this will happen somewhere some, sometime? Yeah, so you're right. And I, you know, given the limits, I thought I had a full hour to talk. So I'm sorry I went over, but the, the, the re, uh, 
the reality with respect to the death data uh, is that, um, you know, th they were playing with the numbers in different ways, using time denominators uh, that, that reflected one year of, of acquisition when we didn't even have the vaccine for six months of those, putting all the deaths in the, in the, in the, in the unvaxxed category. There were ways that they manipulated it. But as I, as I pointed out, by the time we got to the, to Christmas 2022, last, last year, Every single provincial database, I only showed you a few, every single provincial database, and I only showed you a few of the studies, uh, but multiple countries all point out the same thing, that you were more likely to get Omicron if you had more shots. And, and, and this has continued to be the case over the last eight months, you know, with more studies like I showed, to the point where, you know, as, as you're suggesting, they, they've taken that data off. Right. Um, because it, it's it's so terrible. Um, and I think, you know, frankly, uh, with, with the evidence that they're sitting on, it's it's beyond terrible. You know, there's a criminality to, to sort of hiding this data. You're not providing informed consent anymore. Um, you know, do I have hope that we're going to see the I, I think we have more than enough information already to pull these things off the shelves across the board. Um, you know, the any positive uh, um, benefit from serious illness and death was was temporary and it was against the earlier variants. Uh, that is, you know, completely flipped now. You're more likely to be sick it, with COVID if you've had more more shots. That's already the case. Um, and so I, I you know, uh, I, I understand why they they put that away. Um, but I don't I don't feel like we need need more. But what we do absolutely need, you know, with respect to the long term data. Uh, is that, um, you know, we need to be uh, counting the beans in terms of, you know, who's been vaccinated and gets gets ill and who doesn't. Um, you know, what there there recently, just two weeks ago, the German health minister who oversaw COVID uh, acknowledged that there was at least a one in 10,000 risk of serious adverse illness and, and injury after the vaccine. He knew this even when he said that these things were safe and effective. He, he, he acknowledged that he lied about that in order to avoid vaccine hesitancy. But he also acknowledged that the injuries that they're seeing are not the same as those post-COVID. And people, I'm seeing these people in my clinic now as well. They're, they've got, a lot of them have got like 25% of the seams have got permanent injury from this. And it's a different injury. And uh, by not talking about it, we're not looking at, you know, one, uh, acknowledging people that are that are suffering, people who, who went along with what they were told to do. But we're not looking for solutions to try to help the people that have been injured. You know, I have colleagues who literally, even though the Canadian government has paid out for Guillain-Barre syndrome, still do not put the vaccine on their differential for Guillain-Barre syndrome. Um, you know, despite that data. Um, so we absolutely need to be following this prospectively uh, to sort of figure out what's what's going on. Uh, in terms of my hope for it, uh, I won't hold my breath. Dr. Payne, thank you very much for your testimony. Um, a lot of information you provided us with and I sometimes find in these technical discussions that meaningful points are missed by folks like myself who aren't medically trained. But one, one item that you mentioned, and I wanted to ask you for a little clarification on, is you had one slide where you talked about the, the, um, the vaccines, and you said, I believe you said, that they had reported the efficacy in the 90, 95, 97, whatever it was, percent range. And you called that relative efficacy. You also talked about, um, um, uh, you compared it to another number, which I believe you called absolute efficacy. And I'm curious if you can explain to me or in the audience 
exactly what the difference between relative efficacy that was used in promoting it and the concept of absolute efficacy. Yeah, sure. So, um, so we're, we're talking specifically about the relative risk reduction about an intervention versus the absolute risk reduction from an intervention. So the relative risk in the trials, if you just, I'm just, I'll, 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 uh, I'll round the numbers in the original trials, but there were like 40,000 participants in the, in the original trials. 20,000 received placebo, 20,000 received vaccine. In the Pfizer data, the numbers were something like among those who received the shot, and, and keep in mind, you're not fully vaccinated until you're two weeks post your second shot. And I've got data showing that you're actually increased risk of getting COVID before your two shots. But nonetheless, it's not saying that, that definition. They showed that there were about 183 patients in the placebo arm during that 40,000 patient trial who got COVID. Positive test, mild symptoms. There wasn't anybody in that 40,000 patient trial who ended up going to emerge even, let alone needing to be admitted to the hospital. So when they compared that to like, say there was about three or five patients in the VAX group who got it, they compare relative to that. You know, 183 in the vaccine arm, uh, sorry, in the placebo arm got the, got the virus despite, uh, got the virus, but only five in the vaccine arm did. So they, they compare those two and the relative number to 183 versus five, here you get that 95%. But if you actually look at it in terms of the trial itself, which was 40,000 people, and you look at it that way, well, then you get your absolute risk reduction, which is 1%, right? So, um, and, and this is a very common way that pharmaceutical companies are known to play with the numbers when they're advertising to us. And it's because we know that this is misrepresenting the actual numbers and the risk that people like the FDA here put in manuals that it's, you know, unprofessional uh, to, to not provide the absolute risk reduction. Once you have the absolute risk reduction number, you can calculate something called the number needed to vaccinate, which is how many people do I need to vaccinate in order to avoid one case of COVID? And based on these absolute risk numbers, you were looking at somewhere between 100 and 200 people to prevent one case for something that had already affected 50% of the population in the summer. So there was no chance that this was ever going to stop. Or, uh, you know, lock things down, you know, or we had somebody in, in, under oath in our case against AHS, um, one of their experts suggested we could just get everybody vaccinated, we'll stop the pandemic. It's a complete lie. And it's been shown to be completely not true as well. But it's because of these type of things. So they, they yeah. so that when they talked about then and they gave a relative number, an, an ordinary person like myself, who's reading that, who feels that then I've only got a 3% chance, or sorry, I've got a 97% protection is really being misled, I believe is what you're telling me. It's You're being enormously misled. And I mean, the, the proof is in the pudding. So, you know, we, we you, you know, while all these people here on the left told you that there's no way that you're going to get it, you're not going to spread it to anybody else. And then when that proved wrong, they told you, well, you're not going to get seriously ill. And when that proved wrong, they just took the data down. Um, they... Uh, the reality is it was only lowering your risk of getting the disease by 1%. You know, I, 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 I'm, a, I, I, I'm an engineer, so I think of things in, in, in hard terms. And if I think of this in a hard term and I'm trying to evaluate two cars driving down the road and they're, and they're driving side by side at 300 kilometers an hour, their relative speed is zero. So that if I give you the relative speed of those two cars driving side by side 
at 300 kilometers an hour, you have no idea what risk they have and what speed they're actually driving. Is that correct? Yeah, that's a great analogy. That's exactly it. And they, you know, they purposely pumped that. I mean, I showed you the one page poster that, that was posted in the emergency department at our children's hospital and throughout Canada, where they were telling the 12 to 18 year olds that there was 100% effectiveness with this shot. When we already knew it wasn't 100% effective in the adults. So, you know, this has been um, misinformation from the start. And the, this, these absolute numbers, that was available. I wrote that in my letter. This was, this, was, this was clear to people who wanted to pay attention to it at that time. Dr. Payne, we heard from another um, witness in Truro, Nova Scotia, and that witness talked about um, the vaccine itself and the technology of the vaccine. They talked about many of the things you talked about, about the, the vaccine or the, the spike protein showing up in different things and, and, and penetrating the cells. But they also talked about a study with regard to the um, purity of the vaccines that were actually utilized, and they talked about the fact that the vaccines were supposed to be injected in such a way that they never went into the vascular system or the, or the, the circulatory system. And, and what that other witness talked about was that they were supposed to aspirate on the, on the injections and they stopped doing that. So my question to you on that is, are you aware of those other issues, the, the manufacturing issues, the actual injection issues, and do you have any comments with regard to that? Yeah, I mean, I, I actually, that, that's one of the, I, I think one of the, the things that blows this like right open, because if, you know, right now the vaccine companies um, have got immunity, you know, we're not even allowed to look at the, the, the contracts that they've signed with the countries. Um, however, if, if there was fraud involved, then, then they don't get immunity. So with respect to what you're saying, the production, you know, not only did they ramp this thing up fast, but they had to produce it in, in high quality, you know, substances quickly. And that didn't happen. And there's a huge amount of literature to show that. Um, but, but just to, to, you know, just give you the basics on this thing, you know, the, the, the vaccine is supposed to carry the genetic information to produce the spike protein. Um, and what they had to prove the companies is that it actually produced the spike protein and it had to produce the spike protein at a certain length. Uh, and you can measure how long proteins are in something called a Western blot. And, and so you can see how these things are actually being produced. And there was, uh, there were limits. You had to have at least 50% of what was being produced had to be like, you know, normal size spike protein. Um, but it looks, and I've looked into this pretty carefully. And I know, uh, and I, I used to do Western blots, you know, when I was a grad, uh, when I was actually back in high school, even I was doing Western blots, but it looks like it, uh, they cut and paste the Western blots. Pfizer did. Uh, meaning that they, they, there's not actually any uh, proof that they're consistently able to provide to produce reliable spike protein, and 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 proof of that is in you know is in the vaccine adverse event reporting system that I suggested. So not only did people put in their adverse events, they also had to put in the the drug identification number, what the actual batch number was of their vaccine, and there are studies right now out there in the peer reviewed literature showing that there are some batches that were associated with much higher Ill injury than others. You can go to a website called How Bad Was My Batch? Type in your, 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 uh, your, your batch and see. So some of those were much higher. It doesn't mean that they, you know, some of them were, were you know, maliciously far. I mean, my, my impression from what I understand from the people who know this manufacturing stuff the best 
is that you know it, a lot of people got lucky and got got vaccine that just wasn't wasn't potent um, as a result of the fact that you're, you're they're not consistently generating enough spike protein. What you said about the injection part, and I'll leave it at that, is that yeah, I mean if you give this as a subcutaneous or like it's a rather an intermuscular injection. Um, it should hopefully most of it does stay, you know, a large part of it stays in the arm. However, if if by some chance you get this into a vein, you get this into a, a, a blood vessel by by accident, um, you know, you you could be injecting this right into the vent, the venous system, um, and so that's why people pull back on the on the needle to make sure that they don't, you know, draw. They, they make sure that they're you're, you're not blowing it into a vessel when you do that. Has that happened? You know, does that account for maybe why some people had really fast anaphylactic reactions or other things? Like maybe. Um, you know, most people would not have had that injected by mistake into their into their their vein. But the bigger issue is the is the quality of reproduction generated from this this genetic recipe for the spike protein, and and that quality doesn't seem to be there. And there's there's pretty convincing evidence that there's some fraud involved in terms of producing Western blocks that met the FDA standard to allow this to get into the U.S. as emergency use authorization um, that were that were in fact copy and pasted. Thank you, doctor. I have a thousand other questions for you, but uh, I can't uh, ask you a thousand other questions. <laughs> Is there any other Dr. Payne, I know you didn't get to all of your slides. <clears throat> Is there anything in your slides uh, that you didn't get to that is really important that you'd wanted to highlight or did we cover off most of it? Well, we got through everything almost. I guess what I, I was specifically asked to make some comments about masking. And if, if I can just say two words about masking, um, I would like to, um, sorry, as you go through all these uh, here, but um, in, in November, 2022, um, I wrote uh, an article for Brownstone called Time to Unmask the Truth with Dr. Paul Alexander. Um, and it, it's a short article, but there's like 60 references in it, all showing that there is not a single policy grade level data, randomized control trial meta-analysis to show that masks actually do anything to prevent transmission of influenza or COVID. Um, and so after I, I sent this copy of this letter, November 25th, to our chief medical officer and health authorities in Alberta at that time, I followed up with a letter in December because there was new evidence showing that, you know, once again, these masks don't work. Uh, and, and now we've got a, a meta-analysis that was in, in the, in the Cochrane review here, looking at all this and, and they've tried to attack this, but, you know, nonetheless, the, the, the summary point that they can't state is misinformation is that there is zero policy grade data to support masking, uh, especially our children. And, you know, here's Fauci talking about how masks don't work, might, might catch some big droplet if you, you know, but, uh, that's not there. And then, you know, you've got someone like Dr. Kieran Moore in Ontario, uh, who on video is telling parents that if their child, a two-year-old, wakes up sick in the house, they should put a mask on them. Um, and meanwhile, he's out um, at uh, partying on the top 50 most influential without masks at a time that he's telling everybody else. So the hypocrisy that we've seen has, has been has been difficult on the masking. Uh, it's been varied across the board about you know what these these masking rules are from one jurisdiction to the other. Uh, and as a result of the pressure he got, I think, from from being caught, uh, he ended up changing his tune. And now he he actually acknowledged that there can be negative effects of the masks themselves. And as a pediatric neurologist, what I want to say is, everybody, this is intrinsic. Kids need to look at your face when they're learning to speak. Um, they have to be able They you, know, you can all see them mimicking that as they're forming words. Uh, there's lots of studies to show that that's the case. And the CDC, for the first time in over 20 years, decreased how many words a child should know at a certain age. You know, we have, 
you're supposed to know so many words, you know, a couple of word sentences, a couple of words together by age two, so on and so forth. Kids were falling behind so much so as a result of what's gone on with the lockdowns and the masking uh, that first year that the CDC is now now allowing for kids to know much less words, six months, as a matter of fact. Uh, uh, and so it, it, there's no doubt that these things can cause harm. Uh, you know, we know that these things get disgusting and kids have got their hands on these things all the time. Uh, and now we've got, you know, a, many, many policy grade studies all showing minimal to no effective masking. So it's time to move on. And, and when and if ever we get another pandemic around, the idea that we should mask again is nonsense. Dr. That's all I want to say about masking. <laughs> Thank you very much for your evidence. Thank you. Thank you. So our next witness is Colleen Brantz. Colleen, uh, can you start by stating your full name for the record, spelling your first and last name? Colleen Branzi, C-O-L-L-E-E-N-B-R-A-N-D-S-E. And do you promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God? I do. Now, my understanding is is that for 28 years, you um, worked as a registered nurse in the province of Ontario. Yes. And when the COVID-19 vaccines came along, you were hesitant. Am I right about that? Yes, I was. Can you share with us the steps you took um, because you were hesitant? Um, well, I was diagnosed with T-cell lymphoma in February 2021. And I knew as a nurse um, that that's my immune system. And uh, I knew enough, my gut had told me, and I knew enough that I didn't really feel comfortable taking something that wasn't tested um, and proven and that was new. So I thought, well, my GP had mentioned that I should take it, and I said I'd prefer to wait to talk to the oncologist. Um, so I waited, and I spoke with her in June, and she said, I'm telling everybody to get it. And I said, so you don't think that I'm going to have any adverse reactions? That's my immune system. She said, no, you'll be fine. And she recommended I take them three weeks apart. Okay, so armed with that information, what did you do? I did what she said. I trusted her. So I took my first on June 7th, uh, 2021, and three weeks exactly later, I took my second. And what was the result of that? Well, my first injection, I had some tingling in the face and uh, weird sensations, but it went away. So I thought, okay, well, that's just anxiety. You're nervous. Um, and it resolved within, you know, a half hour or so. So I thought, okay, I'm fine. It's just anxiety. I'll get the second shot in three weeks. Um, so I did. Initially, I was fine. And then two weeks exactly to the day, I started developing shooting pains in my feet, um, which eventually led to numbness and foot drop. Uh, numbness up my legs, 
Then a month or so later, I was still questioning. I had a CT of the spine to make sure that I didn't have any issues with my spine that was causing it. I had seen a, a foot clinic. Um, they kind of didn't feel that it was related to my spine um, and explained it and I, I agreed. So my eyebrows were starting to get raised at that point. And then about four weeks, five weeks later, my vision went in my right eye. And I knew at that point. And then my cousin had the exact same thing. And I knew at that point, okay, this is definitely the vaccine. Then come December, um, I had a lot of different things. There's way too many to even list because every system has been affected. Um, I ended up with modeled legs. They're still modeled. Pericarditis. Um, increased shortness of breath, worsened vocal cord paralysis, where I almost had to have a trach done. I have double brain aneurysms that were unable to be surgically repaired that needed urgent surgery because I've been gaslit and nobody will help me. I guess that's probably what I found the most difficult about this whole experience is not only the physical, the isolation, loss of family, friends, people telling me I'm nuts. But to go to a, as a nurse, to go to a hospital after a hospital or specialist and plead with them to help me so I can get my brain surgery done and have nobody help is just been, there's no words. Can I, can I just, and I don't mean to interrupt, but you worked in the hospital system for 28 years. Had you ever seen patients being turned away that, that needed surgery like you needed? No. As a matter of fact, I've used that as an example. I've said, you know, people used to go to the ER for a bladder infection. Um, and how is it? One thing that raised a red flag to me initially is when they were telling people, if you have symptoms go home. Don't come back with your symptoms until you can't breathe. Well, by then you're dead almost. And that just did, I just couldn't understand. So, and I don't know. I think that uh, the gaslighting and that the amount of lives that have been lost um, and that will be lost, mine possibly and pretty much will be, is absolutely devastating when a lot of them could have been helped. Can, can I ask, you've used the term gaslighting a couple of times, and can you explain for us what exactly you're referring to? Give us some examples. Yeah. Um, well, I've been to the ER a few times, and when I presented my neurological issues, uh, symptoms of having TIAs, which is a warning to stroke, of course, they rushed me right to the back. They were going to do everything. When I showed them my mottled legs and voiced concern about blood clotting, as soon as the doctor asked me when it all started, and I mentioned the vaccine, I was done and out of there within a half hour. So I just want to make sure I understand. And um, I, I've got two questions. But the first one is, can you explain for us what you mean when you say mottled legs? where um, typically 
before somebody passes away within hours to maybe a day or two, you'll notice that their legs, quite often it starts in the knees, will get like a veiny look, um, but not just like a varicose vein. It's everywhere. Okay, so you were seeing that on your legs. That's what you mean when you say you had, you had yes. modeled legs. Now, <clears throat> I just want to make sure I understand what you're saying. So you attended at the hospital, you were just telling of this time, and they're taking you very seriously. That You've indicated to them you may be having a stroke, you've gone to the back, there's this concern about modeled legs. But as soon as you mention that you think that it's connected to the vaccine, the treatment changed? It absolutely did. I was sent home within a half an hour when a CT should have been done. They should have ran way more tests to find out if I had what was called antiphospholipid syndrome because you're high risk with clot issues. Plus I had had a pulmonary embolism when I was 29. So that should have automatically been a whoa, let's check this girl. Right. So you, you had the misfortune, actually, because of your uh, career as a nurse to actually understand that you were not being treated properly. Absolutely. And yeah. I thought that might carry a little weight, but apparently it didn't. Now, <clears throat> my understanding is, is also your, um, your family has been affected by the vaccine. Can you share that with us? Sorry. Oh, no, take your time, please. So, <clears throat> excuse me. In July of 2021, my husband was diagnosed with bowel cancer. He had surgery. They said they got it all. They were pretty sure. So July 2022, he had his one-year follow-up. They said he was clear. No cancer. Blood work was good. CT was good. Around the same time, I get a call from uh, my son that he's at the hospital and he's had uh, chest pain. And that they told him that it was probably anxiety. I said, do not leave the hospital, Connor, without a CT and a D-dimer. So they did that. And it ended up he had a pulmonary embolism. He's 23. Two weeks, around the same time, two weeks, give or take, I can't recall right now, I'm too nervous. My husband had the same with multiple blood clots. And then, and that was the same month that he was roughly cleared of his cancer. It was give or take a few weeks either way. And then within five months, my husband, at Christmas, December 20th, 2022, was told that he had stage four liver cancer that had metastasized from the colon. And both your husband and your son are fully vaccinated with the Pfizer vaccine? Yeah, my husband had, uh, my son has two and my husband had three. <sighs> I 
I'm sorry that this is so difficult, and we so appreciate you sharing with us. Can you um, tell us the impact that these vaccinations have had on you and your family? There's not enough time. There really isn't. There's so much that I could go on and on about. I mean, I worry about getting a call that my son, who's 23, thinks he's invincible. He's at that age. He's working out. He's playing hockey. I keep waiting for the phone call because he's not totally compliant with his meds. I am now, you know, my husband's getting chemo, um, and he'll have to have chemo for the rest of his life, which by the looks of how he's doing right now, it's not looking good. I've got him on other stuff, and I'm doing what I can to try and reverse and have a miracle come, but um, I live in fear of what my future is going to be because I, I mean, I might lose my home. There's so much, but I am just devastated. I'm devastated how our government knew that there was issues and still allowed the people and, and to now even continue after they know what's come out. I could see if they, you know, Pfizer or Moderna had produced a product that it was an emergency and they had to get it out and they weren't quite sure, but I mean, it's, it, it has been known now for, you know, well over a year that there is people dying in way higher numbers than are ever reported. I've reported myself and I was told by the health unit nurse that they determined that all of my issues were pre-existing. I said, well, I figured that's what would come back. It's criminal. I mean, and I can't even get a doctor that can diagnose anything. I am still, um, I just got an appointment for an immunologist or a, a neural, neurologist to do my EMG testing, which is your nerve testing, to diagnose me with small fiber neuropathy. And that's not for two years. I mean, I'll be dead by then. Or it could be. I shouldn't say that. And thank you, Colleen. I don't have any further questions for you. I'll ask if the commissioners have any questions. And if the commissioners don't have any questions. Uh, Colleen, on behalf of the National Citizens Inquiry, we sincerely thank you. Thank you. And I thank you for coming and listening. Commissioners, um, we're a little behind on our lunch break. <clears throat> it is, uh, by my count, about eight minutes to one. Um, I would suggest that we take a 35-minute lunch break, if that's agreeable, and uh, that would have us reconvening at roughly 1.25. Thank you. So we'll be adjourned then to 1.25. Okay. So... We're just doing a mic test if, in case <clears throat> we're being broadcast live. So again, welcome to the afternoon session of the third day of the hearings in Toronto for the National Citizens Inquiry. 
like this morning, I think um, listening to these witnesses are going to be a changing experience. Our um, first witness is going to be, yes, Commissioner. That we wanted to raise with you today. Um, sorry about that. Uh, my microphone was none. The commissioners have a, a, a number of concerns we wanted to raise about the proceedings. I remind you and everyone else here that the National Citizens Inquiry has scheduled nine sets of hearings from coast to coast in Canada. And at each one of those hearings, we're hearing witnesses for three days. So far, we completed a hearing in Truro a number of weeks ago, and we had three full days of hearings and a multitude of, of extraordinary testimony from Canadians from far and wide. Today, uh, this week, we've spent now two and a half days in Toronto, and once again, we're presented with incredible testimony from an extraordinary group of Canadians. But I have a question and, and an observation as I look at the rest of the schedule today as well. We certainly listened to a variety of people that were significantly affected by the actions of our government, our institutions, our medical profession, our policing, our legislatures. But I have not yet seen a single representative from any of those public institutions at these hearings. And I want to know what actions the Commission has taken in order to compel or induce these people to come and testify before Canadians. Um, Commissioner, uh, as best I can answer that question for you, um, I am aware that a, uh, the NCI has sent out summonses. So if you examine the rules, the uh, council administrator, who is Mr. or the Honorable Chess Crosby, has the right to summons, issue summonses to witnesses. Now, because we are not a government inquiry, we're not a creature of statute, we cannot compel witnesses to attend. So a regular inquiry can issue summonses, and if witnesses don't attend, they can be arrested and, and brought. <clears throat> we don't have the ability to do that. Um, so we've, we've modified a, a regular summons, so it's, it indicates that they're being summonsed, but we have to be fair to the witnesses and indicate that it is, there are no civil or criminal liabilities if they fail to attend. Now, my understanding is, is that both for the maritime ministers of health and public health officers and those for Ontario have been sent summonses. Um, I believe the Nova Scotia or the Maritimes ones by registered mail and email where we had emails. Um, I believe also by registered mail for uh, Ontario. Um, I can't say for the rest of Canada, but we're not we're not there yet. I can say that the summonses also are very flexible. So it's not like we're inviting them to attend for three days in Nova Scotia or these three days in Toronto. We make it very clear that we are going across the country for two months and that they are free to attend virtually at any of the hearings. And the summons also indicates that we could schedule just a time for them to have a, a virtual attendance in front of the commissioners virtually. <clears throat> to my understanding, we have not received a single response. Now, the NCI has tried to get the mainstream media to cover us. 
and we actually have had um, at least two mainstream media pieces attacking two of the three people that are identifiable as involved with the National Citizens Inquiry because they are named director, directors for the nonprofit that handles our funds. Um, but there's no such thing as bad publicity because that signals to the governments, both provincial governments and federal governments, that we exist. And we know that they know. Uh, we, I, do, I am aware that the council administrator has been in contact with several politicians federally and provincially um, to discuss us. I also know that you know, slightly before the Truro hearings and since, we have exploded on social media and we are being throttled on TikTok and you know, hampered on Facebook and I think YouTube took us down. Um, but my understanding is, and I, I could be corrected, I know that um, right after the Truro hearings, that for the four weeks prior to that, we had 1.18 million hits on Twitter. And I think in the last 10 to 14 days, we've had a million hits on Twitter. So surely to goodness, the governments are aware of us, the public health officers are aware of us, and the Minister of Health are aware of us. And so, Commissioner, I sincerely apologize that we have failed to secure the attendance of a single public official, but it's not for want of trying. And uh, we do intend on publishing on our website the summonses or a list of, of who summonses have been sent to so that the public can be aware that we are doing our best to be an open and fair inquiry where all sides can be heard because our object is to get to the truth. And uh, that's the only way I can answer that, Commissioners. I apologize. Uh, I would like to request from the Commission to make those lists available <coughs> and submitted of the people that we have uh, we have approached and asked to attend to make them available to the commissioners and to be entered into the testimony. So, um, so I, I will uh, I will ask those that would be tasked with that, which would be the council administrator, to ensure that that occurs, um, and perhaps maybe what we'll try to do is maybe on a two-week or monthly basis update that list as part of the record. Thank you very much, Mr. Buckley. Thank you. And so our next witness again is going to be Mr. Jason Kurtz. Good afternoon, Mr. Kurtz. Uh, I will ask you to state and spell your name for the record, please. My name is Jason Kurz, K-U-R-Z. Do you swear to tell the truth today? I do. You're before the inquiry to tell us about your termination with uh, Ontario Power Generation, OPG. Can you tell us first what your role was with them? I began working uh, in the nuclear industry back in around 2002. I was a certified Red Seal 309A construction maintenance electrician. I joined uh, OPG through the uh, building trade unions and uh, performed work as an electrician under the BTU. After some time and uh, achieving some radio, uh, sorry, uh, radiation qualifications, I was more eligible to apply for some full-time postings and I was hired in 2005. 
uh, as a uh, instrumentation and control technician at Darlington Nuclear Generation Station in Bowmanville, Ontario. Uh, I spent a number of years as a instrumentation and control technician and my career saw me uh, move through a few different areas uh, inside the corporation. After a number of years uh, working in the fuel handling department, uh, I became what some people would call an expert in the fuel handling uh, processes and systems and the maintenance involved in keeping the uh, reactor fuel handling systems uh, operational as a uh, control technician. And then I uh, moved into assessing, which was planning the work, uh, making sure that the parts were ordered, and making sure that the pertinent drawings were assembled into a package that was uh, clear and comprehensible for the maintenance workers. After that, I moved into writing procedures for the organization as a fuel handling control technician. Uh, after some time, I felt that my career growth was being stunted, so I started to look for opportunities outside of the union I had belonged to at that time, which was the Power Workers Union. I began looking for opportunities to uh, experience some personal growth and career development, and I started to apply for positions that were in a, a separate union in the house under OPG. That union was called the Society of United Professionals. I'm going to interrupt you for a moment. Uh, could you tell us what your most recent role was? I'm trying to zero in on that. Understood. Uh, the position that I was terminated from, the title of the position is Work Control Team Leader. Uh, I was specifically under the Projects and Modifications Organization for Ontario Power Generation. And that was essentially a coordinator role for, for a team of uh, between 50 to 80 project managers. In my understanding from what you uh, previously described to me is that you coordinated the installation and the safety um, of the installations made when the reactors are running, is that correct? The uh, position that I held was referred to as IPG work control. So what that means is that um, the, the projects that I was uh, helping monitor for milestone adherence were projects that were going to be installed uh, as the reactor was still at power and still generating electricity. It's fair to say that this role you had is quite specialized, is it not? Extremely specialized, yes, that's correct. So once the pandemic started, um, you were working remotely from home? Yeah, that's correct. When I, uh, when I entered the role, uh, I had just come out of uh, a previous rotation in which I was with the radiation department in an oversight capacity. Uh, that rotation had ended. I went back to my home position, which was in nuclear refurbishment training. And um, I had applied previously for, for this position with the work control organization, with the projects and modifications team. And I was interviewed and placed, uh, accepted in, into that role on a temporary basis, what they call a rotation. And the rotation was due to be uh, 18 months, but uh, they hired me before my rotation was up on a, on a full-time basis because they were pleased with my efforts. Okay. Ultimately, um, OPG, of course, like most government institutions, instituted some, a number of COVID mandates, correct? Correct. And you were required to both mask and be vaccinated, is that right? Uh, initially, what they did was they took the workforce that was able to work remotely and they allowed, uh, they actually accommodated and made every concession that they needed to in, in order to minimize the amount of people that they had working on site uh, at the beginning. And um, so when I took the job, I actually started the position from home in my kitchen 
and I learned the, whole, the, the entire role uh, from the comfort of my own home and uh, functioned that way accordingly until they started to call people back into the office. And so when they, sorry, go ahead. Please finish your answer. Uh, when they decided it was time to start bringing the workforce back into onto OPG site, what they did was they had written up a, a policy, a COVID policy, that in my opinion was uh, overreaching and discriminatory, and they tried to uh, force everybody into compliance with that. The policy included vaccination as an expectation uh, if you were not comfortable with getting vaccinated, then you were expected to, I'm sorry, the COVID policy stated that they, their expectation was that all employees were vaccinated and that the employees would reveal their uh, vaccination status in uh, the OPG database, which is private medical information. And uh, if you were not willing to, uh, if you were not willing to disclose your vaccination status, or if you did disclose your vaccination status, but you were not vaccinated, then uh, OPG's policy was then that you would have to be uh, undergoing testing. And um, yes, that was a policy. Again, to be clear, you were working from home, but so once 50% of the staff was being called back, this is when the, the masking and the testing and of course the vaccination requirements were in place. Is that correct? I believe so, yeah. Okay. Now, um, you refused to be vaccinated, and um, ultimately you were terminated. When were you terminated? December 20, I believe 29th of uh, 2021. So end of 2021. And can you comment on what was happening with the policies at the end of 2021? Were they still as strict at the time of your termination as when they were instituted? Uh, well, okay, so there's, there's a lot to cover there, right? Like I was placed on six weeks unpaid leave prior to my dismissal. They were attempting to force me to uh, comply with the policy and they put it in writing essentially that if I would just comply with the testing requirement, then all of this could go away. Um, in my position was is that uh, Ontario Power Generation does not have the, the authority to mandate that I undergo any medical procedure of any kind as a condition of my employment if it's not part of my original work contract, which I agreed to when I uh, agreed to work with Ontario Power Generation. And so uh, during the course of the time where I was placed on six weeks unpaid leave, uh, they started to back off on some of the policies and procedures uh, I wasn't on site anymore. They had uh, deleted my corporate account. Um, I had no access to any inside information with respect to what their timelines were, only through uh, some friends and some coworkers who were keeping in touch with me. And uh, they started to step back on the requirements for uh, disclosing vaccination status and wearing masks. And uh, in the end, uh, I was terminated and lost my career, and uh, and now it's like uh, nothing ever happened. Now it's like the, the pandemic never happened. People don't have to declare their vaccination status, to my knowledge. Um, I don't think they wear masks anymore. So let's back up a little bit. Um, it's clear that you didn't want to be vaccinated. You were terminated because of your non-compliance. 
but uh, the way you were treated was different than perhaps others. Um, my understanding is that you were, the company or OPG found out that you were involved in uh, freedom efforts. Is that fair to say? It's fair to say that, yes. And do you feel that you were singled out because of their, their knowledge? I do. I do feel singled out. Um, when I started the, the role, I had uh, one particular section manager whose name began, began with an L. Uh, he took me into the office. At this time, they were starting to integrate people, integrate the workforce back onto site. Uh, we were working on site 50% of the time and 50% from home. And uh, he took me into his office with a union representative and asked me uh, if, sorry, he stated that I had been spotted on television at a freedom rally and that I was not social distancing and that I was a potential super spreader and uh, essentially directed me to no longer attend these types of events. Uh, I told my section manager at that time that uh, while I was on site working in, in the industry and on the job, I would maintain the utmost professionalism as a nuclear professional. But when I was outside of work, I would conduct myself as I see fit. And I felt that the freedom movement was uh, very important for, for our children because, uh, you know, like, I didn't want to place my children in a situation where an employer is allowed to dictate to them that they must undergo any type of medical procedure. So I was very involved in the freedom movement. I was spotted on the news. And then from that meeting, I was directed to work from home 100% uh, of the time until, until further notice. But despite your ability to work from home, your employer was still unwilling to make any COVID accommodations for you? That is correct, yeah. They refused to accommodate in any way. Um, and even when there was a bit of a wave with, with the way that the uh, corporation had treated the supposed pandemic, um, there was a time where they brought the workforce back and then when Omicron came out, they started sending people home again. And at that time, uh, there was one gentleman from the union uh, Joe, who had sent an email to the upper echelons of management stating that since OPG saw it fit to send uh, remote workers back home to work remotely again, why don't we let Jason come back and continue performing the role that he had been providing previously? No response. Let's discuss your termination letter. It's uh, an unusual termination letter. I, I'm a criminal lawyer, but it still strikes me as unusual. Um, of course, you were terminated, and OPG, as you indicated, wasn't willing to have you back. But the letter also states that you're now ineligible to perform work either directly with OPG or indirectly through any contractor that carries out work for OPG. Tell us about the impact on your career, given this paragraph. It's hard to quantify the impact on my career. Um, I, uh, I've been in the workforce since I was 16 and uh, worked very hard to get where I, where I am, where I was, uh, constantly seeking self-improvement and development. And uh, I had finally landed the job that I truly felt I was built for. I was helping in a meaningful way the projects that I was helping to uh, navigate through the scheduling system that's in place in that nuclear station, uh, they were all, the people have to understand that every one of these uh, projects was in response essentially to the disaster that happened in Fukushima. And uh, 
They were all highly vetted, multi-million dollar projects, extremely important for public safety, plant safety, equipment safety, you know, you know and um, I felt like I was doing something that I was built for. And then the, the only thing, I, I was an award-winning employee, and then the only thing I, I refused to do was concede my medical autonomy over to the company. And so when I got fired and they put that letter out, they essentially stated in black and white, and they put it in writing that uh, they were their intention is to sabotage my uh, entire career in the nuclear industry by stating that no longer would I be allowed to enter any OPG site or property. But they also said I would not be, as you as you read, eligible for employment by any vendor or subcontractor that provides work for Ontario Power Generation. And I wonder what gives them the authority to tell Black and McDonald or Can Adam or BWXT or, or Cameco or any of these other wonderful, wonderful companies that I cannot be hired by them when I have almost 16 years of can-do nuclear experience and I've been single point of contact during outages as in the OCC. Uh, you know, sorry, I'm getting emotional. That's okay. You'll have to get some legal advice on it. Um, but a another point in the termination letter is that you've also been given a notice, uh, a trespass notice, and you can't even attend the building, can you? That's correct. Okay. Sorry. Do you know anyone else who was terminated in the same way from OPG? To my knowledge, I'm the only person who was terminated by Ontario Power Generation under the circumstances of re refusing to recognize the authority of their COVID policy. Let's uh, touch on the financial impacts on your family. The thing that made the people concede and give up, like in the beginning there was a fight, in the beginning there was a lot of people, there were hundreds of people that belonged to a group and we would discuss and share ideas and share our own legal research with each other. And uh, in the end, the company has uh, a pretty big carrot to dangle. The position that I held, uh, just like almost any other position with Ontario Power Generation, was uh, very well paying. It included, uh, excuse me, it included uh, one of the best benefits packages that you could get in Canada. The, um, the pension was uh, top notch. You know, it's basically a dream job, especially for somebody such as myself who came from uh, blue collar construction trades and uh, was just seeking a way to develop myself. And so because the people around who worked for that corporation saw what happened to me when I dug in my heels and I said that OPG does not have the authority to mandate a medical procedure as a condition of employment. A lot of people conceded and, they, and, and some, some quickly and some not so quickly, but in the end, they've got that. You know, they'll take away your lifestyle. And so you asked me about the financial implications. I went from uh, making a certain amount of money that my family had uh, grown accustomed to and lived accordingly with, and uh, I'm not gonna cry the blues about that, but I will say that now here I am, two weeks away from turning 50 years old. I am back on the tools as an electrician. I am making less than one third of the money that I used to make. I have no vacation. Every penny that we spend is hard fought for, strictly counted, and uh, impactful on our families finances, and no pension and no benefits. 
I understand that your children wanted to follow in your footsteps. Um, how are they uh, thinking of their future now with respect to employment? <sighs> yeah. My kids uh, <clears throat> were always inspired by the career that I had developed and the, the lifestyle that uh, my wife and I were able to provide. And so they trusted me to direct, direct them and help them navigate and make life choices that would set them up for success. So their intention was to essentially follow in my footsteps as uh, intelligent young women. They, they were both uh, considering entering the nuclear industry as uh, nuclear instrumentation and control technicians. My uh, oldest daughter actually started the first year of college for that course. And during that time, COVID was uh, in full swing. And there were my, my children were not um, interested in uh, learning the trade from, from the kitchen table. It's not something can, you can learn from a kitchen table. You know, they've been sending kids home and they're trying to teach them this stuff off, off of a computer. And it's sort of like learning how to be an automotive mechanic, uh, you know, over the computer at your kitchen. So um, she had placed her college on hold until uh, the, the restrictions had let up. And then uh, shortly after that time, my children and my wife got to witness how OPG uh, treats employees that failed to um, concede their medical autonomy over to the company. And one final question. I understand that you've had some contact with former colleagues and what did they report back to you about how your uh, role or position has been filled? Oh, when I was uh, when I was in that role as a work control team leader, I absolutely loved that job. I, I just I felt like I had meaning. The job had meaning, and uh, it was a lot. And I took on more than I should have. I, in addition to the responsibilities that I was doing, I also was asked to speak at senior work management meetings to uh, present the status of the projects that were on the plan. This is a nuclear station. I mean, these, these things are planned out 52 weeks in advance. Every penny is accounted for. Every document has to be signed on time. Every single one of these milestones it was my job to make sure that they were all being met. And when they weren't being met, we had to make sure that they were going to be met and that there were forms to go along with that. It was a lot to keep track of. It was uh, very high pressure. It was uh, very, very stressful for some people, but I was built for it, and um, I loved it. And uh, since I've left, I've heard that uh, they've, they've, not, they've not recovered, but I can't say that that's a fact. I've heard that um, things are certainly worse off than they were when I was doing all of the things that were expected from me, plus the uh, extra things I was doing that were asked of me. Thank you. I'll see if the commissioners have any questions. No questions from the commissioners. Thank you so much on behalf of the National Citizens Inquiry for your testimony today. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this broadcast of the National Citizens Inquiry. It's so important to get the testimonies of Canadians out there. So please share on all your channels and invite your friends and family to listen in. As always, you can head over to nationalcitizensinquiry.ca to sign our petition and find out more on how you can take personal responsibility. From the National Citizens Inquiry, thank you. The world is watching.
We are a citizen organized, a citizen run, a citizen funded initiative. We don't have a single large donor. We're doing this all on our own, almost exclusively by volunteers. We want to start a national dialogue. COVID-19 pandemic has been a unprecedented event as far as Canada, the countries in the world are concerned. The fact that in Canada, people are still afraid. It has not been disclosed uh, to the general public the contents of the uh, material. So in that moment, she framed every unvaccinated person, including her guest on the show, as a danger to public safety. What's interesting also is that nobody can name a single real world vaccine success story where COVID rates went down at a nursing home or a funeral home after the vax rollout. You're in a cancer clinic and you feel abused by everybody because they, they didn't want to know you. They wanted to know your mask. They wanted to make personal contact with your mask and that was the horror of it. How did we get to this point? A nation that is afraid to let its people judge the truth and falsehood in an open market is a nation that is afraid of its people. That's still where we are in this nation, Canada, because no government, no authority wants to inquire into its handling or mishandling of the last three years response to COVID-19.